And within that term SVT, we tend to clump a lot of things. Anything that fits in there is gonna read as a positive. So it might be a true positive, it might not. They come back with a big midline sternotomy scar and nobody has any idea what's happened to them. So while trying to enter a building, a explosion went off and injured three different rangers right off the bat. But that seems to be something that most emergency physicians are not yet comfortable with. Um, November. Welcome everyone to the November 2021 EM Reviews and Perspectives. This is Swami and we are in my favorite month of the year. It's also one of the favorite months of the year for my co-host, the brilliant Dr. Jan Schoenberger. Jan, it is so wonderful to be back and be in the fall with you. Swami, yay, it's fall, it's November, it's cooling off and holidays are coming. It's so exciting. It is so exciting. Such great holidays coming up. Obviously we are well into the football season and we've got Thanksgiving coming up. And uh, as you know, Thanksgiving, my favorite day of the year. I'm so excited. I am still a little full of candy from last night. I ate a lot of my kids' candy last night, Jan, a lot. And of course, <laughs> I'm sending you all the gummies. They're in the mail right now. You're going to yes. be getting them in two days. Thank you, thank you. As someone with no kids, I depend on the ER staff to bring in their candy to feed me during the next month, and that will happen for sure. That is definitely our job. Our job as parents is to bring half of our kids' candy, bring it to work, and let it get devoured. And man, it yes. gets devoured quickly. Mine was gone in like yes, it does. five minutes, Jan. Five minutes, it was all eaten up. All right, Jan, well, let's get into the case now that I am full of chocolate and peanut butter and nougat. The case. Let's get into the case for this month. This is a case I actually saw in Fast Track just a couple of weeks ago, and I'm really excited about this case because it's not super critical care, but it makes us really think critically. So I got a 72-year-old guy who complains of left knee swelling and pain for about a week. He says no fevers. He's had no history of similar that he can remember, although somewhere in his chart, there is this notation of gout. And when I ask him about gout, he's like, oh, you know, like 30 years ago, a doctor said maybe gout or something. But as far as I can tell, he's never had any confirmatory testing of gout. He's never had any official diagnosis. I look at his vitals and they're pretty much fine. He's a little tachycardic around 105. I look at his knee. There's clear swelling. You can't appreciate erythema, but that's because he's black and his skin is dark. I don't see erythema, but it is warm. The knee is definitely warm to touch. It's tender. He's got a positive ballotment, which I will be honest, Jan, I didn't do it first. And then I'm like, ooh, I'm going to go back and ballot that thing. So I, I did a ballotment test. There's clearly an effusion. And his range of motion is a little limited. He can go from like full extension to about 60 degrees comfortably. And then he's clearly in pain. And when he walks around, because he insists on walking around, he has an antalgic gait. So when you see that kind of a patient, 72, knee swelling, pain about a week, no fevers, questionable history of gout. What are you thinking about in terms of diagnoses? Mm, a case of monoarticular arthritis. I love it. I'm excited about it as well. Now, let me just confirm, there's no history of trauma and there's no other joints involved, right? That's correct. So no other joints hurt, no trauma. Okay. So worst first, which is our job, I'm thinking septic joint right away. I'm going to try to talk myself out of that. Now, with the possible remote history of gout, of course, I'm thinking, is that just a red herring? I don't want to bite too quickly on that. But I am thinking about the crystal arthropathies in general, given his age. So not just gout, but pseudo gout. You know, it could be your just standard osteoarthritis, but you said he doesn't really have a recent history of similar. And usually older people with that type of arthritis have a history of same. It kind of comes and goes. 
So at this point, I am going to kind of hang my hat on septic arthritis, but the gout is still out there and I'm thinking about it. And my first question, Jan, you've kind of already answered, which is, can I hang my hat on gout, give this guy some anti-inflammatories and send him on his way? Yeah, I think you mentioned that he doesn't like I don't consider it a real history. He says somebody told him at some point he might have it. He can't really confirm if he's had a tap confirming crystals. So without a history of like multiple flares of gout or some story that the joint was tapped and gout was the diagnosis, I just I can't hang my hat on that too too much. And it's hard too because even if he's got a history of gout, that doesn't mean this is gout because people with gout are more likely to get septic joints. So it's it's really hard even if he has that confirmed history, but you're right. This guy just really doesn't have a good history of gout for you to be like, oh, this is clearly what it is. So here's some NSAIDs. Go on your way. They said you're going to try to talk yourself away from septic arthritis. And, and I kind of interpret that as I have to rule that out. I have to rule out septic arthritis, but I don't want to stick a needle into everybody's knee. I got a busy department. I got other stuff to do. Can I get some labs? Can I get like a white count and an ESR and a CRP? And if those are okay, just say, not a septic joint, walk away. Well, I wish the answer was yes. But one thing I've learned about septic arthritis in particular is you cannot count on very much, unfortunately, especially a white count, perhaps the most overrated test in medicine. That being said, a stone cold negative CRP might give me pause, but a positive one doesn't surprise me. And in this case, wouldn't help me differentiate between septic joint and gout. So that being said, if it does turn out to be a septic joint, I also am thinking, well, my consultants are going to want labs. So if I'm thinking about efficiency, I'm probably sending them to cover my bases. I think that's okay. I think the problem is relying on them, like you said. Yeah. Either relying on them if they're negative and saying it can't be a septic joint, or if they're positive, pushing you towards the tap and waiting for those, right? Because you might wait a couple of hours or depending on where you work, you might wait even longer. I definitely know people who work places where you send an ESR or CRP, that's not coming back till tomorrow. So you can't hang your hat on that to help make your diagnosis. You, you kind of have to act. And you know, I talked about being in a busy department. What I don't want is somebody occupying a bed for four hours waiting for a lab. It's not really going to change what I do. The other thing to think about is imaging. Is there, is there imaging that I can do to help with this? And, and there really isn't. I mean, are you going to get an x-ray? Maybe. Maybe you're going to get an x-ray to see if there's some underlying problems. We actually did an ultrasound, not to rule out septic joint, but for two reasons. One, to confirm that we have an effusion. Even though it sure seems like it on exam that we have an effusion, we can look with the ultrasound and confirm that there actually is an effusion so we don't stick a needle in for no reason. And then there's also the issue of, could this be bursitis? Is that a possibility? Could it just be an overlying cellulitis? And you can look for those kind of changes with your ultrasound as well. But again, I don't know that it would convince me not to do the tap, but I think it's additional information that can be helpful. So we did the ultrasound and we confirmed that, in fact, there is a lot of fluid there. And I think we just have to do the tap at this point. Yeah, I think that's right. And luckily, the knee is one of the easier joints to tap. So I don't think it, you know, is a lot of angst in terms of doing the procedure. I think you, you're right. You send the labs and then you just go ahead and do this tap. And I don't want people who don't have an ultrasound or ultrasound skills in this area to think that you have to have one. I think that you, you said it can add some information. But at this point, I think you can go ahead and do the tap. And Jane, the tap was easy. I'll be honest. I'm not going to tell you that it was harder than it was. It was easy. And you're right. Knees are pretty easy. Large joints are fairly easy to get a needle into. This one went pretty smoothly. We do have a great video on MREP HD from, from Jess Mason going through the process of tapping a knee, but this was super straightforward, very easy to get into. And while I'm in that joint or right before I get into the joint, one of the things I'm thinking of is I'm going to take fluid out. Clearly, I'm going to take some fluid out. I'm going to send it off to get tested. But should I put anything into that joint? Should I give this person an intraarticular injection of something to help with their pain or their discomfort? 
So Jan, when you tap a knee and you're worried about a septic joint or you're worried about gout, do you put anything back in to help with the pain? So if I'm tapping a joint for diagnostic purposes, thinking that there could be an infection in there, in general, I don't think you have to do so. But you might put in some local anesthetic to be kind because it does give some good local pain relief. I, you know, just taps in general, I'm not opposed to doing taps for other reasons besides diagnoses, um, whether there's a big hemarthrosis there, there's recurrent osteoarthritis there with a big effusion, in which case I might inject something like a steroid, but that is a discussion for another day. We're not talking about that right now. We're talking about someone who might have a septic joint, in which case I'm definitely not injecting steroids. I think the question is about injecting an anesthetic or not. And I agree with you 100%. I think you should put a local anesthetic in because of the amount of pain relief. I mean, let's say that you tap that knee you send it off for diagnostics. It's not a septic joint. Now you're going to send the patient home. Nice that he's in a lot less pain and he can walk on it. And let's say it is a septic joint. You give him something local. Well, that's also nice. The guy can be pain-free while you're waiting for your orthopod to come down and see the patient and figure out what they're going to do next. And so there's a lot of options here, obviously. You can just give a little bit of lidocaine. The problem with that is it doesn't last as long. You're not going to get that long-lasting pain relief. So we actually use ropivacaine. The dose for ropi or the max dose of ropi is three migs per kg. And we're not going to be anywhere near that amount. So we took the 0.5% solution, which is five milligrams per ml. We gave about five cc's of that into the joint. And Jen, I actually did a little bit of work on this after talking to the resident about doing it and said, are there other things we can put in there? And we just did the ropivacaine. But if you look in the orthopedic literature, they talk about putting morphine into joints because there are mu receptors in joints. They talk about using clonidine. And of course, they do talk about steroids, but I agree with you. I'm worried about a septic joint. I'm not putting steroids in there. So we just did a little bit of ropivacaine to give the patient some of that long-lasting pain relief. We sent off the studies to figure out whether this was a septic joint. And we actually discussed more on intra-articular injections with Neha Rocker back in February 2019. So check that segment out as well. Neha Neha is awesome. I, I love her stuff. Absolutely. And I think remembering that is what convinced me I should probably put something back in. So we get that fluid off. We send it for cell count and gram stain. And Jan, there's a lot of other labs that people like to get that don't really help us that much, but, but they, they classically, we get them. So I don't know, get a glucose. I don't know. Whenever you send the fluid, you should get LDH, I guess. I don't know. It doesn't, probably doesn't help us in a joint very much, but glucose often gets done. It's really that cell count, the gram stain where the money is. But there is some literature about fluid lactate. So Jan, are you doing this? Do you send a fluid lactate on your joint aspirates? I am aware of that literature. I typically don't. And I think the truth is that probably like most people, I use an order set and it's not on there. And it's probably too, it's too much trouble for me to figure out how to do it. So, you know, I probably skip it. But I have read those papers. Interesting. Yeah. Chris Carpenter did a really nice review in Academic EM back in 2011 and showed that a lactate over 10 basically clinched the diagnosis. The likelihood ratio was so high that if you had a lactate over 10 on that fluid, you were done. It was a septic joint. In that five to 10 range, it was helpful. Below five, basically tells you that you're not dealing with a septic joint or you're probably not dealing with one. So it's something that's kind of nice to do. You can get a quick turnaround, but your point is really important. You got to talk to your lab and figure out how to order this, what to send it in. Because if you just do it in a blood gas syringe, you're probably going to screw up your blood gas machine pretty bad and someone's going to be really angry at you. So just talk to your lab and figure out how do I do this? How do I send this for a lactate? How do I get that test done if you want to do it? And we sent off the joint fluid. We got a cell count of 12,000. We did do a lactate. It was 1.5, so it was pretty low. And the lab actually called me and said, hey, I'm looking at this fluid and there are a ton of crystals in here. This guy definitely has a crystal arthropathy. So what do you do with those results? That white count of 12,000, the lactate of 1.5? 
Well, I want to confirm in terms of a crystal arthropathy that it is the gout crystals, not the pseudo gout crystals, but confirming that it is actually gout crystals. That's very reassuring. And now it, it does sound inflammatory. It falls into that category of inflammatory arthropathies. It's not septic. This is too low to be a septic joint and the crystals pretty much nail it. So I'm going with gout. Yeah, it's really unlikely with that low of a white count that you have a septic arthritis. It's not impossible, but it is highly unlikely. And so we went back to see the patient because it does take a little while to get that cell count done. And he feels great. He's walking around. He doesn't really have much pain. That ropivacaine has clearly really kicked in. We gave him some NSAIDs also. And so he looks fantastic. And we send him home with follow-up for gout to figure out what medications he should be on long-term and that kind of stuff. But I think it was a big win. I mean, the guy, if it wasn't for COVID times, Jan, I think he would have given me a hug. He was so happy to be pain-free. And of course, you know, this is a 72-year-old guy who works. And so he's like, can I have a work note? I'm like, oh, how many days off do you want? Go, no, 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 no. I need a work note that I can go back to work later today. Yep. So he felt really, really good about this. And I think it was a really big win. And it kind of hit three big learning points for me, Jan. One is that you can't rule out septic joint based on your labs alone or the history of gout. If you think septic joint is at play, you just got to get the fluid and send it off for that cell count. Number two is that a history of gout predisposes you to a septic joint. So even to the patient who tells you, I know I have gout, I get these gout flares, just think about septic joint. Doesn't mean you have to tap everybody, but you got to think about it. And the last one is that if you take something out, you take fluid out, go ahead and put something back in and make the patient feel better. That is just, it's such a great everyday case. And I would add another little quick point, which is that gout responds very well to steroids. So if you have somebody who, you know, either has a contraindication to NSAIDs or the NSAIDs aren't helping them, consider treating with steroids. We often forget that option. Oh, that is a great little tip. You're right. I, I don't usually give steroids. I didn't give it to this guy. But that's a, a good conversation to have with the patient and also talk to their doctor and say, hey, guys here with a, with a gout flare, I'm going to put it on some steroids and have them follow up with you. I like kind of like closing that loop with the primary doctor as well to make sure that follow-up gets done. And Jen, that's our case. And we're now going to launch into the rest of the month and what we have on tap. We have some great segments. My favorite is the one from Dan McCollum. And it seems, Jan, like we often say that Dan's are our favorite segments, but this one's really good. It is not one of his typical segments with the music and matching that with the topic. This is an amazing, heroic case of people managing multiple traumas on the battlefield and how they did that. And honestly, I listened to this piece and kind of had my jaw agape the entire time listening to what these guys did in a short period of time. For me, a highlight was the piece you did with Jeff LaPointe about the useless urine drug screen. You know, it's just a test you have to know a lot about so that you understand, you know, false positives, false negatives, all of the details. And so I, I like that piece. And honestly, this piece was prompted by Jeff saying, I am tired of telling my consultants and my residents why I don't like urine drug screens. Can we do a yes. segment? So then when they ask me, I can just be like, listen to MRAP so I don't have to say it again. Yeah. I think that the urine drug screen might be Jeff's arch nemesis. It might be his, his evil twin. If he could destroy one thing, one test, I'm pretty sure it would be the urine drug screen. Just blow it up. Of course, Dan, we have so many other great pieces this month. I can't wait for everyone to listen to all of the fantastic things that we have on tap. I didn't even talk about the rural medicine piece, which is so good as it always is. I can't wait for everybody to listen to everything. Jen, I'm going to listen to everything too. And then I'm going to see you on the other side in the mailbag and the mega summary. Absolutely. It's a Thanksgiving cornucopia. Fantastic segments, everyone. We'll see you on the other side. See you on the other side. Rural Medicine Talks.
Greetings all and welcome to the rural medicine segment for this month. And I'm joined once again by Dr. Adrian Salim, who I hear has got a case for us. You've heard right, Cardi. Well, first off, I should give a shout out to Zach Weinstein, the pride of Queens, New York, whose case this was. I was sort of peripherally involved in this. So this case takes place in Chisasabi. I'm working in our ED there. And as most of these cases start, one of the nurses comes over and asks me to see a patient that just came in with EMS. And she tells me this patient's breathing a bit fast. She thinks it might be CHF. So I go see the patient. She's 65 years old. She's known for diabetes and chronic kidney disease from diabetic nephropathy. And her kidney function is really, it's, it's not great and it's been worsening. So what's her creatinine at baseline so we have a sense of where we're starting? So it was around 250 and in American units that's 2.8. And it's been worsening over the last year or so. Turns out I've uh, finally found uh, the meaning of life for me anyway, and that is to be on the rural medicine pieces and convert from the US to European and the rest of the world. So creatinine 2.8 is in milligrams per deciliter, and that equals about 250 micromoles per liter. Uh, either way, it's not good. Okay, so that's pretty significant kidney disease. And what was she actually presenting with this time? She just felt kind of generally weak and tired and unwell. She was also feeling a bit short of breath for the last week. And then uh, she said she's been maybe having a little bit more peripheral edema, you know, in the last month or so. But there's really nothing else aside from that. So like no orthopnea, no cough, no fever. Although she did say she had some chills like the day before. Decreased PO intake. So she is making urine, but just not as much as usual. And then she thinks she gained some weight as well. So she thinks it's around two kilos or around four pounds or so. And then in terms of her vitals, her respiratory rate is, is fast. She's breathing around 28, these sort of shallow, fast breaths. And she was hypertensive as well. Her systolic uh, was around 160 or so. But otherwise, her vitals were okay. Her SAT was 96% on Rumer. And uh, the exam was not overly impressive. She did have some peripheral edema, um, like we mentioned, but her lungs were, were clear and everything else was, was fairly unremarkable. But then her labs start coming back. So her creatinine is now 700 or so. So that's 7.9 in American units. Um, her potassium is 7.6. She's acidemic. She's got a pH of 7.15. Her bicarb is 10, but she is trying to compensate respiratory-wise, so her PCO2 is 25. Thankfully, her lactate, her sugars were okay. We get a chest x-ray. I really don't see much in terms of pulmonary edema. And then her EKG shows that her QRS is widened compared to her prior. It almost looks like a left bundle branch block pattern, and again, that's, that's new. And I should also mention at this point, I go back, I do a bedside ultrasound. I look at her IVC, it looks pretty full. I look at her kidneys, I don't see any signs of hydronephrosis. Um, I have a quick look at her pericardium, I don't see a pericardial effusion. And then I swing down to her bladder and it's pretty empty. I mean, there's a little bit of urine, maybe like 100 mils, but she's definitely not in retention. Okay, well, that's one good thing, I guess. So luckily she's pretty stable right now, but obviously that could change. So what was your plan? So this patient needs dialysis. Call over to nephrology at a referral center and they agree, send her down and, and they'll get her started on hemodialysis. So that's the easy part. And even though there is a dialysis unit in Chisasby, we can't initiate it there. That has to be done at a tertiary care center. So what that means is it's going to be at least six hours, possibly more, until we can get this patient down to where she needs to be. And that's what I wanted to go over here was an approach on how to temporize these patients who need dialysis until we can get them to their definitive care. But I think this is a relevant topic to a lot of us who work in smaller or even larger community EDs. Yeah, I think this is a really important topic. So why don't we start off by talking about dialysis indications? I like using the A-E-I-O-U mnemonic. Do you know what I'm talking about, Cardi? I do. These are the vowels. Yeah. Spell it out for me. 
So the A stands for acidemia, so a pH of less than 7.1 despite medical management. The E stands for electrolytes, so meaning hyperkalemia, again, despite medical management. The I is for ingestions like lithium or toxic alcohols. The O is for overload, meaning refractory volume overload, especially pulmonary edema. And then the U is uremia, so pericarditis, bleeding, and uremic encephalopathy. A-E-I-O-U. Got it. These are the now, I actually use these indications for dialysis as a way to remember the different aspects in management of these patients. So I think about hyperkalemia, I think about volume status, acidosis, and uremia, specifically uremic pericarditis. So let's start with hyperkalemia. Now, hyperkalemia is the most common and, and I think the most nuanced part of the management here, especially if there's going to be a long delay in transport. Now, in this case, her potassium initially was 7.6. And she had EKG changes uh, consistent with hyperkalemia. So she's getting everything, right? We're throwing the kitchen sink at her. So she got calcium gluconate. We shifted her with insulin and uh, D50. And then she got some Ventolin nebs as well. So with that treatment, her EKG normalizes. We get a repeat K in about an hour, and it's down to 5.7. So you did get her potassium down to a more reasonable level, but you still probably have probably around five hours, like in the best case scenario, until she arrives at the dialysis center. And uh, what, so what was your thought on how to actually manage that time delay? I mean, I think that's the main question. So some interesting facts here that I didn't really appreciate until this case, but calcium's effect only lasts for about 30 to 60 minutes, and insulin's effect lasts for about four hours or so. So there's a chance that that K may creep back up again. So what we figured is that we would get a repeat potassium about an hour before the scheduled departure. And this way, it'll be close enough to the flight, but also enough time to deal with the results if we have to. And so we do that, and her repeat potassium comes back at 5.8. Okay, but what was your plan for the flight, given that her potassium could still creep up in that interval where you won't be able to see her? There's not, as you know, I mean, there's not a whole lot you can do on a flight. What we would do is continue giving her Ventolin nebs on the plane. The flight nurse would keep an eye on the monitor. And if that QRS complex starts to widen or we lose P waves, then he would give calcium and possibly insulin as well. And then the other thing that was really easy to forget is that we really needed to continue monitoring the patient's glucose while they were on the plane. Okay, so what was the next step in your management? Yeah, so now my attention turns to her volume status. So she appeared to be volume overloaded, right? Like she had peripheral edema. Her IVC looked pretty full when I looked at it with the ultrasound. And if I could actually find her JVP, I'm sure it would be elevated as well. However, she thankfully didn't have much, if any, pulmonary edema. And the nurses had placed a Foley. She was making a little bit of urine. I mean, not a, not a lot, but there was some urine that she was making. Okay, so what about giving furosemide then? What was your thought for, on that? She was already on furosemide at home. But I spoke to the nephrologist and they thought we should just give her a dose of IV Lasix and, you know, there's really little downsides to it. So, so we gave it. Now, luckily, it sounded like she wasn't in any respiratory distress and didn't have significant pulmonary edema. But what was your plan if that developed while you were with her or in the plane? Thankfully, we didn't have to go there. But if we needed to, we could have done the usual kind of pulmonary edema treatment. So BiPAP, a nitro infusion if she was uh, hypertensive. Again, these are temporizing measures until we can get her to dialysis and take off some of that fluid. And then another thing we could have done is a phlebotomy. Now, I've never done this, and I really, I'm, I'm not really sure how to do it. Do you have any thoughts on how to do this? I've never done this, but I did a bit of research into it. And so what you do is you take a 16 to 18 gauge needle, and you allow around 400 to 500 cc's of blood to be drained by gravity. Now, this usually takes about five to 10 minutes from start to finish. So obviously, it's not a long procedure. The nurses are usually fairly comfortable with, you know, accessing veins in this way. And so we can get to some fluid off pretty quickly. And how it works is, well, it's pretty straightforward. You're literally pulling volume off of the patient. Of course, it doesn't work to correct hyperkalemia or any of the other metabolic issues, but at least this way you can maybe get some of the volume off. So 
maybe not so much for this patient because she wasn't uh, in acute pulmonary edema, but if someone's really having a hard time breathing, this can, uh, can help them a little bit. Is there any evidence for this? Well, it's not exactly sort of recent evidence because I think we're obviously trying to get away from this as a treatment, but it is still there in your, sort of, to have in your back pocket. And so one 1995 study looked at the response to phlebotomy in patients who were already dialyzed and who presented to the emergency room with acute dyspnea and two or more signs of acute pulmonary edema, and they had to have failed nitrate therapy already. 80% of patients actually improved markedly and required neither intubation nor emergency dialysis after they had therapeutic phlebotomy. And in almost 40% of cases, the patient's next dialysis treatment was deferred for almost 10 hours. So in places like Chisassibi, that time save can be a huge deal. And the side effects are really comparable to the rate of side effects from emergency hemodialysis treatments in these patients. And as long as no more than 500 cc's of blood were withdrawn, the patients did well. And that's a little caveat that we could mention, too, is that, you know, if your patient is not in sort of florid pulmonary edema, but you're worried about the amount of time that it's going to take to transfer your patient, you can always take off less than 500 mm -hmm. cc's, but really the mm -hmm. max is 500 cc's. Now, I should mention if the opposite happens, if the patient is volume depleted, then you can give fluid bolses as well, right? Now, in a situation where the patient has significant kidney disease, it's probably best to go with, you know, small boluses and then just reassess frequently. Okay, next up, acidosis. Now, in this case, her pH was certainly not great, right? It was 7.15, but it really wasn't awful as well. And she was compensating as best as she could. Now, my worry was that if she were to tire out respiratory-wise on the transfer, then her pH would plummet, and then it could lead to all sorts of badness and cardiovascular collapse. So I'm wondering about starting her on a bicarb infusion. And when you look up the indications for starting bicarb, it's usually a pH of less than 7.1 and evidence of cardiovascular compromise, although I'm sure this is not a cut and dry answer. Now, the main reason why we just wouldn't give bicarb, you know, willy nilly, as I'm sure you would say, Cardi. Yeah, you're rubbing <laughs> off on me a little bit. The reason you wouldn't just give this to anyone is that you're giving an already volume overloaded patient some extra fluid and a lot of salt, which can make their volume status even worse. So when I spoke to nephrology, and they felt that the risk of volume overload in this patient was greater than the risk of worsening acidosis, and so they thought we should probably hold off on bicarbons, so we did. All right, so next on the list to consider is uremia, and specifically uremic pericarditis. So this is going to present similarly to other types of pericarditis, right? There's going to be pleuritic chest pain, there may be a rub present, if you can hear that. There may be the usual EKG findings as well. And the treatment is dialysis. That's, that's how this is treated, not NSAIDs, not colchicine, it's dialysis. But why we really need to consider it is that patients can develop pericardial effusions and they can develop tamponade. Now, it's probably a good idea to have a quick peek at their pericardium with the ultrasound to make sure they don't have a pericardial effusion or any signs of tamponade before you get them on an ambulance or a plane or a helicopter. And in this case, thankfully, the patient did not have any chest pain. She had no findings of pericarditis on her EKG. And then when I had a look at her, uh, her pericardium on the ultrasound, there was no pericardial effusion. Summary. All right, well, we've covered a ton of ground here, so let's try and put all this together. You have a patient that needs dialysis. You can't provide dialysis in your center. So what's your quick approach to managing them until they get to where they need to go? All right, so first off, hyperkalemia. Remember, calcium's effects only last for about 30 to 60 minutes and insulin for about four hours, so they may need to be redosed. Next, assess their volume status. If they are overall volume depleted, you can give small boluses and then reassess them frequently. If they're volume overloaded, you can consider furosemide. And then if they're in pulmonary edema, you can consider the usual treatments with uh, non-invasive ventilation and nitro. And then you can also consider a phlebotomy, uh, have that in your back pocket if you really have to get some fluid off and fast. Now for severe acidosis, consider a bicarb infusion, but talk with your local nephrology team for, for some guidance about that. And don't forget to look at their pericardium since you don't want to miss a big pericardial fusion and impending tamponade. Remember, bedside ultrasound is your friend, 
look at the IVC, look at the pericardium, look at the kidneys for any signs of hydronephrosis, and then finally look at the bladder for uh, any signs of retention. All right. Well, we, I think that's a great overview, but now I really want to know what actually happened to your patient. It was kind of boring, actually. And, and I guess in our business, boring is good. She got down to the referral center, no problems. Uh, she didn't need any further calcium or insulin or anything. So she was down there for a few weeks while they stabilized her on hemodialysis. And then she came back up to Chisassabi a few weeks later, and she is uh, now one of the dialysis patients there. That's a great story. Thank you so much and so many key learning points. Thanks, Adrian, and um, hope to talk to you soon. These cool letters are the vowels. Anemia, electrolyte, ingestion, overload. A E I O U. Anemia. Listen to the sounds. It's time again for Scott Weingott. Critical care. Mailbag. Scott, good to have you back, and I have a doozy of a question for you. Actually, this is one that a listener sent an article to Mel and said, I got this article and this device manufacturing company is pushing this device on our emergency department and ICU for measuring fluid responsiveness. And Mel looked at it and said, you know what? I know exactly who should tackle this and threw it over to us, threw it over to me and you to kind of get into. And I don't want to go right to the specifics of the device and the article itself. I want to talk about some general concepts. Let's start really basic with what is fluid responsiveness? All right. Fluid responsiveness is the idea that a patient who receives a fluid bolus, usually it's something like 500 cc's over 10 minutes, is going to have an increase, a significant increase in their stroke volume, how much blood, the heart ejection. Generally, the cutoff for that is like a 10% increase. So you gave fluid and the heart now has an increase in its cardiac output due to an increase in stroke volume. In the past, Scott, we have talked most about fluid responsiveness in terms of septic shock. We really shouldn't be giving crystalloid to patients who are bleeding. So let's take the septic shock patient as kind of the classic. What we were told is you got to fill the tank. So give them many liters of fluid. And I can remember patients where I gave six or seven liters of fluid. And then at some arbitrary point, we said, oh, that seems like enough fluid. Let's start some pressors. The current guidance from professional societies is to give septic patients a fluid load of 30 cc's per kilo. And if the map is still less than 65, start vasopressors. What's the problem with this approach to fluid loading? Okay. Well, you know, and here's where I put out the mea culpa. When I look back on MCRIT, the biggest mistake, uh, one of the only things I would revise if I could go back in time, is I was pushing fluids hard in, you know, 10, 15 years ago at the beginning of the early goal-directed therapy phase. And I felt I was in good company because every other person in the United States was pushing the same thing. The Australians looked at us like we were idiots at that point, but I was pushing hard. And then there was no reason for measures like fluid responsiveness because just give more fluid. The more fluid, the better. There's no limit. Give 20 liters of fluid if need be. And wow, have I had a sea change. Most of the people in the United States are still pushing this idea. There's now a subset of intensivists out there that are saying this is not good. And they're saying, do not give any fluid unless you could prove it's going to have a benefit. Now, if you're in that camp, more power to you. I think it's wonderful. And then things like fluid responsiveness become important. I'm not even in that camp anymore, Swami. We could get to where I am, but I don't need fluid responsiveness for reasons we'll discuss. But let's talk about the camp that's saying, don't give fluid unless you could prove it's safe. What this group is saying is that excess fluid has a lot of really deleterious things in these patients. The fluid you give is not going to stick around for any significant period of time. So if you could get away with proven 
It's not going to benefit the patient. Don't give any more. And for that crew, fluid responsiveness tests are important. Now, let me disambiguate that, Swami. What did I confuse people with? Well, I think one of the things that we often see is, well, I gave a liter of fluid and the pressure came up a little bit. And then 20 minutes later, I went back and it was down. But I know that last time I gave him some fluid and it helped. So I'm going to give another liter of fluid and see what happens. And you can kind of see where this cycles, right? All of a sudden you're six, seven liters in and you're like, maybe I need to do something else. Yeah. Well, okay. So I guess I'll give my viewpoint now because I think it'll be helpful to contextualize everything else. In general, septic patients don't have significant external fluid losses. They have all the losses they get from the insensible losses of breathing and sweating from fever, et cetera. And that, that needs some replacement. But in general, we don't have cholera patients. In general, we don't have you know, massive GI losses as the source of patient sepsis in the United States. Now, other countries may have that, and then it's a different paradigm. You have to give massive amounts of fluid replacement to save those patients' life. But let's say you have a pneumonia patient. Sure, they're breathing more quickly, and so they have insensible losses. But beyond that, the fluid's still there in their body. It's just been sent elsewhere outside their bloodstream. And so the idea used to be, well, just fill that tank. But the problem is this tank does not stay filled. You know, now most of the studies I'm seeing say like within an hour, almost all of that liter of crystalloid you gave, gone. So you haven't done anything good for these patients. So now I've moved to a paradigm of, you know, giving a perhaps an initial fluid bolus, depending on the patient, how much that would be, and then stopping. And then I don't need to check fluid responsiveness because I don't care. Because just because they are fluid responsive doesn't mean that bolus is going to stick around and that it was a valuable thing to give. Now, if you're in that camp of, I like giving lots of fluid, then fluid responsiveness becomes really important because I want you to limit that idea. I want you to give less fluid. And if you do a test of fluid responsiveness and they're not fluid responsive, don't give any more fluid. And I think that's where most people are right now, Scott, right? They see these measures that are lumped on them of 30 cc's per kilo. And so they're doing it. They're doing it whether the patient is full or not, whether they're just going to third space all their fluid or not, because we feel like we have to. And in that case, you're saying fluid responsiveness might be a better paradigm than just blind fluid administration. Oh gosh, yes. Well, let's, let's break this down. First of all, 30 cc's, I don't know where it came from and it shouldn't be there. All of the big trials were done with 20 and this 30 just came across. Now let's say you were the smartest person in the universe and you are so adept and your hospital has more money than they know what to do with and they buy every cardiac output monitor out there. And you took a patient with septic shock and you proved they were not fluid responsive. Based on the current paradigm, you still need to give that patient who you've proved is not fluid responsive the 30 mLs per kg. So already ridiculous. But let's say you cared more about your patient than these idiotic guidelines. You might give a liter of fluid and then test fluid responsiveness and say, I'm not going to give them the 30 mLs per kg because after one liter, they've already shown me they're no longer fluid responsive. And gosh, would you be a great physician at that point? All right, Scott, then let's take a step back. Let's use a case to kind of frame how you would recommend people to do this. We've got a 55-year-old woman who's got diabetes, hypertension. She comes in with a fever and cough. Her vitals are tachycardic to 135. Her pressure is 80 over 40. She's febrile to 103, and she's got a SAT of 89% on room air. We're not talking COVID times. This is going to be a straight pneumonia, not a COVID pneumonia. So we'll take it as a straight bacterial pneumonia. You give her some supplemental O2, pop in a couple of IVs. Are you giving that patient a fluid bolus right up front? Yeah, because of the insensible losses we mentioned, I think almost any patient could probably take a liter of crystalloid. 
maybe you'll prove me wrong with like you'll you'll create this test case of like every badness known to man, like an ejection <laughs> fraction of five percent and renal failure, et cetera, et cetera. But even in that case, pretty much any patient could probably take a thousand cc's of fluid. Then depending on the patient is when you're going to consider additional testing at that point. Now, you get a patient and you, you, they're young, they're healthy, they have no comorbidities, and you just don't have the time to do your ultrasound interrogation at this stage of the game, and you wanted to give that patient 20 cc's, maybe even 30 cc's up front. I think that's the ones you're going to get away with it without too much problem at all. But let's take this elderly patient you give me. And, you know, actually, you told me she was 55, Swami, is that right? 55. So not elderly, Scott. Okay, fine. Let's, let's so watch I, out. I might we do give have her... some listeners who are going to take an issue with that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair enough. I might give her, you know, uh, even the two liters up front and see, or, you know, if it's not that busy, maybe at this stage after a liter, I'll throw on the ultrasound and see what her heart, her lungs, and her IVC look like, and then get a gestalt of whether or not I'm going to give the 30 mLs per kg in this patient. I would not be doing real tests of fluid response in this at this stage of the game. I would just be getting a gestalt of what's going on. And now I used to recommend IVC as an indication to give more fluid. If, if the IVC was flat or there was still extensive respiratory variation, I'd say that's an indication to give more fluid. But that was when I was in my somewhat crazy give lots of fluid stage. Now IVC is super useful in the opposite direction. If you throw on the probe, even after the patient's just gotten 500 cc's of fluid, and there's no respiratory variation with a plump IVC, I would say that's a patient it's probably not safe to give more fluid to. They're showing you that their CVP is rising and that fluid may be dangerous, that they're not going to be tolerant of that fluid. Now, I get really reluctant to give more fluid when I have a non-dynamic IVC, a complete paradigm shift of where I would have been 15 years ago. Well, let's take this patient. You give the leader up front, you get a chest x-ray, they have a low bar pneumonia, you get your lactate back. It's about four. After that bolus, the heart rate and blood pressure haven't changed. Now, you've already said it. You're going to be applying your ultrasound at this point. If the IVC is plump, then you're going to be reaching for vasopressors. What if it's not plump? And I'm, I'm not talking flat, but it's somewhere in between. Is this a place where you're going to give more fluids or you're going to use one of these fluid responsiveness measures to determine if you're going to give more fluids or are you just going to vasopressors? And this is really where it's going to be a gestalt based on the individual patient. So let's, let's make it a little cleaner. Let's say you've given the patient you're describing 30 mLs per kg, and they're still hypotensive. For me, it would just be vasopressors. I would never be giving any patient without external losses beyond insensible more than 30 mLs per kg. And I would just start vasopressors, not even care about fluid responsiveness, because even if they are fluid responsive, I don't believe it's telling me what I really want to know, which is, am I going to get a durable, lasting benefit to this patient from giving more fluid beyond that 30 mLs per kg? Other people don't believe what I believe, and they think some patients would benefit from more than that 30 mL per kg. Those are the patients fluid responsiveness testing was built for, because I think if you're going to give beyond 30 in pretty much any patient, you should only do it under the auspices of demonstrated fluid responsiveness. All right, then which technique are we going to use? Because there are a couple of different ones out there. There's respiratory variation of the IVC on ultrasound. There's getting a map before doing a passive leg raise and then getting another map. There's looking at general cardiac function and then doing a passive leg raise. I've seen all of these different techniques. Which one do you think, if you're in that camp where you've already given the 30 cc's, you want to give more fluids, which of these measures should people use? So much out there. So let's go through them one by one. 
IBC is completely inaccurate in this regard, in my opinion, for giving beyond 30 mLs per kg. It's the opposite. If the IBC is big, plump, no respiratory variation, it tells you not to. But the variation, the small IBC does not tell you to give fluid. And that's, that's a big sea change for me. So there's that one. Passive leg raise is such a wonderful demonstration of physiology to show your medical students once. It is a catastrophic pain in the ass to actually do repeatedly, which is what you're supposed to be doing for like every 500, 1,000 cc's of fluid. And what I will tell you is if you have an A-line and the pressure goes up with your passive leg raise, yes, that probably is demonstrating something. But if it doesn't go up, it doesn't mean the patient wasn't volume responsive, wasn't fluid responsive. Because what happens is they get the response and the patient's endogenous catechol tone just releases a little bit. So the map stays the same. So you can't really use passive leg raise for any sensitivity by looking at the map. It is specific. So if the map goes up with a passive leg raise, yes, they're probably fluid responsive. But if it doesn't, it doesn't mean they're not. And so really what you're looking for is some measure of cardiac output or stroke volume. Now, what you could do is a VTI, you know, throwing the ultrasound probe on the heart in a five-chamber view and doing this like whole Doppler thing, real pain in the ass beforehand, and then do another one after the passive leg raise at just the right moment. This is wonderful on paper. It's a pain in the ass in real life. I don't bother even pretending that's a good thing. One, you know, way to do passive leg raise is with these cardiac output monitors. And you really need something. Now, the, the gold standard, and it's not even that gold, it's kind of tarnished, is the SWAN. I don't think anyone in the ED is doing that anymore. We, we do them in the CTICU, not, not in the ED. So no one's swanning these patients. If I had to put my next ranking of the most accurate out there, it would be the Pico or Lidco. And I take no money from any of these companies. Those are also a pain in the butt. You need a arterial line. And some of them, they have to be in the femoral artery and it's a whole thing and they need to be calibrated with either fluid or lithium inject. Pain in the ass. You'll see ones that work on radial art line just by analyzing the waveform. I really am not convinced of any accuracy in the patients I really care about, like the profoundly vasoconstricted patients from giving them vasopressors. And it's variable depending on the study, whether these are good or not. And then you'll see the bioreactants ones that work on just putting patches on the chest, like EKG leads, in essence, pretty good, not horrible. I tested it. It was pretty good. It's not perfect, but probably the most ED reliable and combined with easy to use. So if you were convinced this was a good idea, I'd look at these bioreactance devices. And there's also a set out there that I have not played with. So that's the proviso for these. So I don't know. I haven't had personal experience of their accuracy that actually look at the patient's end tidal CO2, not just on the normal waveform you're used to, but actually use it in a far more uh, dynamic way with uh, software and analysis to predict this stuff. So those are the ones that are out there. I had the money at some point to buy these, Swami, and I think it will say something to the audience that I decided, no, it was better to use the money to buy a, another ultrasound machine rather than cardiac output monitors because they really don't have very much utility in my EDICU. What you're actually giving us is an easier way overall to run this thing. You know, give your fluid bolus up front, whatever fluid bolus you think is right, whether it's the one liter and then reassessing, or if you're going to do that 20 or 30 cc's per kilo, but then at that point stopping. Because these patients, unless it is, like you said, a cholera patient or some other patient with massive GI losses, they're not going to need more crystalloid. And that's the place where you should probably be reaching for vasopressors instead, in which case you don't really have to do any of these fluid responsive dismeasures. 
the device that we specifically got asked about is one of these bioreactance devices, which you're telling me they work okay, but there's an expense. There's, there's quite a bit of expense with some of these devices. Even if they're giving us accurate information about what they're looking for, they might not actually be guiding our management any better than we were doing before. Yeah, if you are savvy with ultrasound, and I think at this you know, stage of the game, you really need to be, you get almost all the information you need. And not even with the complex stuff that, you know, a Jacob Eagle is going to be telling you with all these, you know, Doppler analyses. And I, I mean, just a gestalt of heart function, what the IVC looks like, not to measure it, just to look at it. Is it huge? Is it tiny? And, you know, beelines in the lungs telling you that they're uh, getting progressive interstitial edema. That probably has more value than these devices for almost every case in the ED. Summary. Scott, let's try and summarize a little bit of this because there's a lot of different places we went here. But in general, you have a septic patient who comes in. You're saying if you give them a 500 or 1,000 cc's up front, most patients are going to be able to take that. And that's fine because they do have some insensible losses. Once you hit either that one liter or if you're still really convinced you need to give that 20 cc's per kilo, once you hit that point, it's a good place to stop take a look at the heart, take a look at the IVC. And you just mentioned the lungs also to see if there's interstitial edema, because that can give you quite a bit of information about whether the patient can take more volume. If the IVC is plump and there's no variation, you really need to give up on volume. It's not going to add anything because their CVP is already up. And I would say the same thing. It sounds like if they've got a ton of B lines, there's a ton of fluid in the lungs already. It's unlikely that giving more fluid is going to help and you should be reaching for vasopressors. However, if you are still of the mindset that you can give these patients more and more and more fluid, then using a fluid responsiveness measure isn't a bad idea. But these devices that measure cardiac output that help us with that, they're not really offering us much more than the ultrasound does. And the ultrasound machine is in most of our EDs. We just have to get comfortable with it, comfortable looking at the heart, looking at the IVC, looking at the lungs. And that can give us the information we need to determine whether more fluids is indicated or if we should be reaching for vasopressors instead. Absolutely. The, you know, the way I'd say this, look, if you're in one of those shops where you're not good at ultrasound, it's not part of the program, you just need to move these patients through and you're like, I'll just give them six liters of fluid and that'll be the great way to go. I'll avoid vasopressors and put them on a floor somewhere. Then please buy one of these bioreactance devices or cardiac output monitors and make a protocol where you just stop giving fluid when they're no longer volume responsive because you're doing, in my opinion, harm to your patient. But if you're a much more careful resuscitation doctor and you're like, wow, you know, I'm going to give this patient the minimum amount of fluid that I think they need, and then I'm going to move to vasopressors, then you probably don't need these devices. The other thing I'll say is, please don't let two hours go by with a patient with their MAP in the 50s while you decide the perfect amount of fluid, because they're taking a hit from that period of time hypotensive. And so I would say, you know, give them an initial fluid bolus and then start them on vasopressors. And then you could decide on further need for fluid while their MAP is supported. And that vasopressor is actually going to change the dynamics of their venous side such that it in and of itself, without any fluid, will increase the amount of fluid coming back from the heart just by squeezing down that enormously wide open venous side and may actually make the fluid you do give work much better. So please, early vasopressors is where we are moving in sepsis care right now, along with a moderate, appropriate decision on how much fluid the patients need. 
Excellent, Scott. This is a great review. I think a paradigm shift is needed from just dropping leader after leader after leader. And I think this can help to give us really the power to not do that, to give that first fluid bolus, reach for vasopressors and use our ultrasound to help guide our management. Thanks so much. Oh, such a pleasure. Kids may not be small adults, but many pediatricians are. Ladies and gentlemen, the not-so-short Dr. Eileen Claudius with some pediatric pearls. So I'm here today with Ashley Strobel. She is an assistant professor of emergency medicine and director of pediatric emergency education at University of Minnesota and works at Hennepin and Masonic Children's Hospital. And we're going to be talking about complex congenital heart disease. Complex congenital heart disease, part one. I think we all kind of have a sense of what to do when these kids come in with their first presentation of complex congenital heart disease, but then they go to cardiology, cardiothoracic surgery, they come back with a big midline sternotomy scar, and nobody has any idea what's happened to them. So Ashley's going to tell us what's happened to them and what we can expect and how to deal with the complications of these surgeries when these children return. Thank you so much for filling in this big practice gap, which is kind of outside of the comfort zone for a lot of us. Well, thank you so much for having me. And frankly, it's outside of the comfort zone for probably anyone who's not specialty trained in congenital cardiology. Basic surgeries. Let's just start very basic. If there's any chance that a parent remembers the name of the surgery that their kid has, or we're able to find it in the chart, can you just talk about a few of the surgeries that are commonly performed in children with congenital heart disease and kind of let us know just in general what's happening there and what we can expect? Absolutely. Well, first, the most common congenital heart surgery is going to be a ventricular septal defect repair. However, that doesn't get as complicated. So I'll start by talking about kind of the more complex surgeries. Just focusing on what the name of the surgery is can help you know what to do next. Knowing the name of all the different lesions the kiddo has is mostly just confusing to me and I think to most of us. Transposition of the great arteries. First, we'll start with transposition of the great arteries. The surgeries that have traditionally happened are known as an atrial switch procedure, which is the senning and the mustard. These create kind of a two-way baffle in the top of the atrium, connecting the atria and allowing mixing to occur. Those have been more recently kind of phased out. So those patients that have had those surgeries are typically going to be our adult congenital heart disease patients. Arterial switch procedure. More commonly now, we have the arterial switch procedure where the aorta and the pulmonary artery are switched. This is more common because they will suffer less atrial arrhythmias, and that's obviously going to be good long-term. Single ventricle staged procedures. Then you have kiddos who are living with a single ventricle. One of the more common names that we hear associated with that is hypoplastic left heart syndrome. There's also double outlet right ventricle, tricuspid atresia, hypoplastic right heart syndrome, pulmonary atresia, and pulmonary stenosis, to name a few. Again, knowing the names of the original complication, not as important as knowing what comes next. So basically, you're saying any of this collection of defects leaves you with pretty much one functional ventricle, whether it's the right or the left, who cares? And the whole point is to take that one functional ventricle and make it pump systemically 
and give it a chance to get blood back from the venous circulation. That's exactly right. Asking one ventricle to do the work of the pulmonary and the systemic circulation long-term is not setting it up for success. So we ask that one ventricle to just do the important part, which is the systemic circulation, and then we create passive flow back to the pulmonary circulation. So I particularly love the single ventricle physiology and more importantly, the staged palliation. So back pre-1970s, pre-1980s, most of these children were given comfort care at birth and they lived maybe one to two weeks until their PDA closed. Less than 30% of them made it into adulthood. Now with the staged procedures, we're having more than 70% make it into adulthood. So here are the stages. Stage one. Stage one is going to essentially happen at birth. It is called a Norwood procedure. It's kind of a compilation of multiple things happening at once. But the main goal is to allow mixing to occur and to still be using that single ventricle for systemic and pulmonary circulation. So the first part is going to be either a BT shunt or a Sano shunt. The BT shunt and Sano shunt replace the patent ductus arteriosus, the PDA. So typically we would have a kiddo on prostaglandins to keep that open. But sitting on a prostaglandin drip, risking apnea and hypotension long-term isn't going to be sustainable. So the BT shunt connects the subclavian artery and the pulmonary artery. The Sano shunt connects the right ventricle to the pulmonary artery. Both are performed. Both are performed on the same patient or they'll choose to perform either the BT shunt or the Sano shunt. That's exactly right, the latter. So each surgeon's going to have their preference for either a BT shunt or a Sano shunt, and that's what they'll use as that first stage to replace the PDA. And then they'll have an atrial septostomy if they don't already have an ASD, and they'll oftentimes get a neo-aorta for later when we want that systemic flow to be more robust. So this happens all of it at birth. That is pretty amazing that we can somehow hook up venous circulation with the pulmonary artery, create a new aorta, and we can't give any treatment for the common cold. So what can we expect of a child who has had this particular initial phase of the correction? So after the Norwood, these children typically will get discharged to home because they need to be a little bit bigger before they can go on to stage two. And we refer to this stage as the inner stage period. And that word just makes me shudder, actually. <laughs> Why does it make you shudder? The inner stage period is a period of possible instability for these kiddos. During that stage, they have about a 10% risk of death. Sadly, in some studies, 50% of those deaths occur at a community hospital far away from where all of their cardiothoracic surgery team is. And when these kids come in dying, what is it that they are dying of? Well, the most common thing they die of is a common cold. Okay, also very concerning. So some of the more common things that they may come in for are going to be things like a URI. They may have hypoxemia. They may have an infiltrate due to a viral or a bacterial pneumonia, which can cause some VQ mismatching, like your bronchiolitis may have. They may come in for gastroenteritis and some dehydration. What we think of benign in other kiddos can actually be pretty serious for these kiddos. So why is something like a cold or a pneumonia going to be such a problem for a child in this interstage period? What is the physiology that's causing them to be so vulnerable and how do we address that? 
Great question. So say that you have a bronchiolitis. That kiddo is going to have a lot of mucus plugging. They're going to have bronchospasm. They're going to have areas of atelectasis, of VQ mismatch. And so that will, first of all, decrease your functional residual capacity of your lungs. It will also increase intrathoracic pressure. So this entire system of one ventricle doing the work for the pulmonary and the systemic is completely preload dependent. And therefore, the intrathoracic pressure totally matters for blood flow. So you're saying when a kid has something like bronchiolitis, their intrathoracic pressure is increasing, their preload may be decreasing due to vasodilatation, a fever, dehydration, what have you. And the combination of those two things is preventing return to the heart and therefore their ability to pump systemically. Yes, and it's not even just the pumping systemically in the circulation. It's also that their lungs aren't getting blood flow, so they're not getting oxygenated blood. So along with a circulatory problem, by not having that preload, they also will have hypoxia, whether it's from the viral illness itself or from this lack of preload, and that will further worsen the cycle because oxygen acts as a pulmonary vasodilator, and so it encourages pulmonary blood flow. But when you don't have that, you'll have a discouraging, I guess, of pulmonary blood flow, for lack of a better way to say it. So are you saying that every patient that I see in this interstage period with an upper respiratory tract infection or bronchiolitis needs to be admitted? Or if they look very well, could I consider sending them home with careful precautions and follow-up? For me, and I think the practice at most places, when these kids come in with a bronchiolitis or other viral respiratory illness, caution is heated and typically 24 hours of at least observation is the norm rather than the exception. And if one of these kids starts looking bad, getting more deeply cyanotic, what do I do as a provider to address that? Can I give oxygen? Can I give fluids? First of all, kids in this interstage period will have a typical oxygen saturation of 75 to 85%. You mean when they're sick or normally they have an oxygen saturation of 75 to 85% the whole time they're in this interstage period? That is the normal oxygen saturation when they're in the interstage period. Wow. All right, then. I'm going to be less worried about my patients who are satting 75 from COVID now. Maybe not extrapolated to the COVID, you know, 65-year-old diabetes, CAD kids. I'll be like, you're fine. If the neonates can handle it, surely you can handle it. You're a grown-up. Come on. Well, neonates are tough, and these guys are fine at that 75 to 85% level. Cool. Okay, so let's say they start satting 65 to 75, something that's out of the range of acceptable, even for them. What's my next step? So the question becomes, why? right? Could they have hypoxemia from that simple viral illness? Certainly. The other question is, could they have shunting? Honestly, the approach to hypoxia is the same. It's going to be to give patients a trial of oxygen. But the first thing you do before you decide to turn on the oxygen is you ask the parents or you look in the chart and you say, what is your kiddo's baseline oxygen saturation? Where do they live at at home? A lot of these families are going to have a pulse oximeter at home and be spot checking these or have like a home nurse to do that. You know, it's interesting because I was laughing when you said most families know what surgery their patient has had because at most of the centers I've worked at, that's not necessarily been the case. But the one thing they do seem to consistently be able to tell me is what their child's normal oxygen saturation is. They actually do tend to know that number. Great. So you ask them the number and the parents say 80%. 
So then that is the number you target. You're not going to target 100%. You have to kind of come to terms with feeling okay with that, kind of like we've had to come to terms during COVID with seeing different numbers than we're used to. So then I usually put some nasal cannula oxygen on them, try to target their baseline saturation and see if we get improvement or if we get worsening. I want to know how their perfusion is. So I want to know their blood pressure. Sometimes in these kiddos, I might check it in a couple different extremities, mostly because of all the shunting. I'll often get a chest x-ray like we would for any hypoxia or shortness of breath. You're going to be looking for infiltrate, which can also mimic pulmonary edema, but you can be looking for pneumothorax. You can be looking for cardiomegaly. Sometimes I'll check a BNP with labs, but for sure I do an ultrasound and I try to look for B-lines. I try to look for cardiac function. I look at the IVC mostly as like a marker for serial reevaluations. And then I make sure there's no pericardial effusion. And basically all the same principles as we see in adults related to the B-type natriuretic peptide and the ultrasound and the B-lines, those are all applicable in this population as well, correct? Exactly. I would say it's the exact same approach and workup as it would be for hypoxia in an adult. Great. So how do you decide fluid or no fluid? Right. So if this kiddo comes in with gastroenteritis, having some vomiting and diarrhea, they seem dehydrated. First of all, dehydration increases the risk for thrombosis, especially as we start getting towards the later stages of surgeries, but it can even increase it in these young kiddos in the inner stage. You're not going to have that preload, so your pulmonary flow will be less, which means you might have some hypoxia too, and you're not going to have as much systemic flow, and that can increase metabolic acidosis. Low oxygen is also then further going to increase metabolic acidosis. So my approach for the hypovolemic kid is really to, again, get my vital signs because they're vital and make sure that I'm doing cap refill to assess their distal perfusion. These kiddos actually tend to have normalish blood pressures for age. You can go back. I know my EMR lets me do review flow sheets so I can see what their blood pressure has been over time. And that helps me to know where I'm targeting. And if you notice that the patient is either frankly hypotensive, which is always scary in this age group. So this is a neonate. So I'm assuming kind of somewhere under, you know, 60 to 70 systolic or you notice that their perfusion is just terrible and consistent with shock, what type of presser are you looking at as your first line? Or is that your first line? My first line is definitely going to be IV fluids, but I'm going to do it very gently. I'm going to do 5 to 10 ml per kilo aliquots. And I understand in sepsis, this can seem maybe too little, but it's important that we don't go too far. And then I would use serial cap refill, blood pressure, heart rate, and also ultrasound reevaluations of this kiddo. If their perfusion is still low, there's this funky formula in cardiology they call the pulmonary blood flow the QP and the systemic blood flow the QS. You want there to be a one-to-one -one ratio there. And so a formula you can use quickly in your head in the ED that's easy is use 25 for your pulmonary blood flow and then use 100 minus the oxygen saturation for your systemic blood flow. And if you can target 25 to 25 as your one-to-one, -one, that's a good place to go. So if your systemic blood flow number is less than 25, you know you need some more support there. And if you feel like you've kind of gotten to your max on fluids, then we need to increase the systemic vascular resistance with vasopressors, as you mentioned. And do you reach for 
norepinephrine like you would be likely to do in an adult? Do you reach more for epinephrine? You could basically use either even phenylephrine at times. It will increase your systemic vascular resistance enough to help with distal perfusion and hopefully to shunt some blood flow to the pulmonary circulation to get some oxygenation. If you have a little bit more cardiogenic shock, you're thinking the heart's not really functioning well, I'd probably more go to your epi. In that scenario of like a cardiogenic shock, the intensivist or the cardiologist may request something called milrinone. They tend to use a lot of it, but in the setting of hypotension, milrinone is not a vasopressor. It's more of an inotrope and uh, can actually vasodilate. So just something to be aware of that they may mention, but when your first line, norepi, epi, or phenylephrine would work great in this scenario. Great. Now, a minute ago, you mentioned thrombosis, and you've obviously discussed a few different types of shunts. Can those thrombose off, and how do we know if that's what's causing the problem? Thrombosis can happen, and especially in the setting of dehydration, as I mentioned. So we have to worry about these little tiny synthetic shunts, the BT and the Sano shunt. We know from medical school and every board exam that the PDA has a machinery-like murmur. Well, the BT shunt and the Sano are replacing the PDA, and they're not made of our own tissue, per se. And so they definitely have a very distinct, loud, machinery-like murmur that you can hear throughout the entire chest. So if that murmur is not present, and this kid is in the inner stage, so still has their BT shunt, that's concerning. If you thrombose that shunt, what are you going to see? Well, they're not getting that mixing of blood flow going to the lungs. So you're essentially having decreased pulmonary flow. These kids will be hypoxemic and they are at risk for rapid decompensation. So if I listen to one of these children in this interstage period, I don't hear a murmur, at least not a loud machinery-like murmur. They look kind of shocky and more deeply cyanotic. In addition to calling the cardiologist or the cardiothoracic surgeon and screaming, help me, this child does not have a murmur, which seems like that might be the only time I get to do that. I guess that I'm also going to start heparin. I would definitely start heparin. If that shunt clots off, that's their lifeline. And at this point, it's not like you can start prostaglandins to save them. Heparin's your answer. I would say in a heroic situation, if you are far from a center, you would even have to consider TPA. That doesn't sound scary at all. Not at all. Summary. So Eileen and Ashley have taken us through stage one of this complex heart surgery. Just to summarize what's happened so far, these children have been born with one functional ventricle and have undergone the Norwood procedure at birth. This is a complicated surgery with multiple things happening at once, but the main goal is to get that one ventricle pumping systemically and to allow mixing to occur on the venous side. It involves a BT or Sano shunt to be placed that replaces the patent ductus arteriosus as well as a few other procedures. These children will typically be discharged home to grow a little bit more before stage two, and this is called the interstage period. These children go home from the children's hospital or specialty center to where they live, and often that is located far away from those specialty centers. This is a scary period of possible instability for these kids with a 10% risk of death, and many of these deaths occur in these community EDs where we all practice. These children, because of their tenuous physiology, can get something as simple as a URI or gastroenteritis, and it can really tip them over. 
into CHF or a hypoxic state. This system of one ventricle doing all the work is completely preload dependent, but they are also very sensitive to too much fluid, and so they can go into CHF easily. Most places would admit all of these kids, even if it's something minor, for at least 24 hours of observation. If the child does come in looking cyanotic, we want to check their O2 sat. And remember that they may have an O2 sat normally of 75 to 85%. That is where they live. So ask the parents what their baseline O2 sat is, and that is your target. You can give them a trial of oxygen and target that baseline saturation. Get a chest x-ray, use your ultrasound, look for signs of fluid overload. Now they could be dehydrated, and this will increase the risk for thrombosis of these small shunts that they have placed, and they need preload. So fluid status is really important. Give them small aliquots of fluid. It's five to 10 cc's per kilo that's recommended. We need to be gentle. And we want to use serial cap refill, look at their heart rate, ultrasound, and blood pressure to reassess. If you need a brazopressor, go ahead and use norepi, epinephrine, or even phenylephrine to help with that distal perfusion and help with oxygenation. Stage two and stage three of these surgeries will be covered in part two. So please join us then to finish the exciting story. Hey, this is Dan McCollum. I'm absolutely honored today to be joined by a couple of ER docs that work for the U.S. military. My name is Ryan Knight. I'm an emergency medicine physician and the medical director for the 75th Ranger Regiment. I'm Charlie Moore, uh, another ER doc with the 75th Ranger Regiment. So you guys reached out to me a few weeks back and had an absolutely incredible story um, that is absolutely true. In fact, some details have to be cut out. And before we even get going, I have to say that, that none of this necessarily represents the views of the Department of Defense or the U.S. Army. That's correct. We always have to say that. So there's a few details that have been cut out, but the medical aspects of this are absolutely fascinating. So Ryan, can you sort of set the scene about what happened? Well, first, I need to say that None of this is anything that I did. This is completely executed by a couple of our young medics that are out on the battlefield. And it was August 16th, 2019. A couple of our Rangers were wounded in action during an intense firefight that uh, was so intense they couldn't get any evacuation. And our medics had to care for these wounded Rangers for over two hours alone in the, in the middle of a fight. As this story develops, I want everyone to imagine, not that you're in your level one trauma bay, right, where you got all the tools in the world, bright lights, all that stuff, all the meds that you want, but imagine that you're taking care of these patients essentially in the dark, correct? That's correct. Every time they tried to turn on a light, in fact, one of the medics would often jokes that it was self-correcting because the volume of machine gun fire would impact so close to him that it was, again, self-correcting. He had to turn off a light, and they did almost everything under night vision goggle treatments only. So let's talk a little bit about the, um, the injuries that happened and a little bit about what occurred from the details that we're allowed to share. So while trying to enter a building, a explosion went off and injured three different rangers right off the bat, and two of them were kind of minor injuries, but the third ranger had massive injuries to the right side of his body. He had a traumatic amputation of his right lower, lower extremity. He had a traumatic amputation of his right upper extremity, and then a huge gaping hole from his pelvis to the right side of his chest. What next does the medic do? So they see this patient who's lost part of their arm, part of their leg, and has a huge gaping hole in their side. What, what does the medic do? Well, the first aspect of tactical combat casualty care is don't take any more casualties. And so 
the very first step is to return fire and move the casualty to cover. And so Sergeant Bowen moved into the breach, the into the danger zone and pulled the casualty back to cover and around the corner. And, and, and we followed the march algorithm. And so he started conducting his march sweep and sequence. So one of the things that we want to do for this to, to make sure that our civilian audience has some take home points from this is to bring this home to real world scenarios that you might have, even if you're not in a combat zone. So one of the things that we often forget as ER docs that don't have experience in pre-hospital care is scene safety. You know, it's, it's classic when we're doing these scenarios and, and people just run up on a, on a car without stopping to think like, hey, is this a safe scene? Here, I think it's a little bit comedic, the idea that while people are firing weapons at you, that it's going to be a safe scene, but at least safer. The March Algorithm. You mentioned the March algorithm, which for years I thought was a much, much better approach to trauma care. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the March algorithm is? What we know is that patients, especially in combat, but definitely in trauma, are dying from blood loss much quicker than they're dying from airway. And so the old ABC has been replaced with massive hemorrhage first. Check out the May 2021 episode of MRAP where Dan discusses in detail the March algorithm. So M for massive hemorrhage, which is going to recommend early tourniquet use. A for airway, suggesting that you open the airway with chin lift, jaw thrust, and use of crike if needed. R for respiratory, treating potential tension pneumothorax. C for circulation, to control bleeding, giving blood, and TXA. And H for hypothermia, keeping your patient warm and dry. And for us, we really check extremity hemorrhage because that's something we can intervene upon very, very quickly and save a life. And so we train our medics to sweep the legs because they're the largest source of hemorrhage. So they do a leg evaluation and then they move to their arms. So yes, this has actually replaced uh, my personal mental approach to a sick trauma patient with more of the March algorithm first, because the number of airways that you have to take right away are very small compared to the number of times that you see someone's actively bleeding and just needs a tourniquet to really stabilize things a lot more. And I do the same in the ER as well. I have defaulted to the March algorithm when I get a trauma patient in my civilian practice. If you don't currently have a tourniquet in your car, you probably need to think about it. A lot of you probably have some airway equipment in your car that I'm going to tell you is probably never going to be used for that roadside accident. But someone listening to this has a real chance of saving a life if you've got one, preferably two, cat tourniquets in their car. So let's move on, right? So we have this massive injury. We've lost an arm and a leg with a huge gaping hole in the side. So the medic proceeds with the March algorithm. What he noticed was that there was a massive amount of bleeding from his right inguinal region that he just couldn't stop. And one of the recent reviews of combat trauma, what we learned is that with traumatic amputations of the lower extremities, there's a large amount of pelvic fractures and hemorrhage as well. And this patient very obviously had a pelvic fracture. In fact, the entire right side of his body was basically missing. And so, Sergeant Bowen brought out a pelvic binder and a junctional tourniquet. He personally used a improvised junctional tourniquet, but there's many on the market out there. And he inflated the device on the right inguinal region to slow and hopefully stop the bleeding coming from what eventually we found out to be his right inguinal artery. Excellent. So we've got this junctional tourniquet on. We're slowing the bleeding some, but we're suspecting massive pelvic trauma. What happens next? His help arrives. One of his junior medics, Sergeant Abel, comes up. At that time, Sergeant Bowen starts placing a IV, puts a 16-gauge IV into his one good arm. And our protocol for TXA is we actually use TXA as a two-gram flush instead of over 10 minutes. And uh, I can talk about 
the reasons why we've extrapolated the data to use a two gram flush, but our case series that we have shows their safety in that. And we don't exactly know the, the correct dose, I don't think, for TXA at this point. And what we do is we allow our medics to pre-draw TXA in a 10cc syringe. And so they replace their saline flush with the TXA. And so now instead of flushing with saline for their IO device or their IV, TXA is going in as their flush for proof that the line is good. And so now right off the bat, we've got a line and we've got TXA given to the patient. So we, we've got a large bore access, right? We've done our best to control the hemorrhage between uh, you know, the use of a junctional tourniquet, et cetera. And now you're going to probably tell me that lots and lots of crystalloid is the resuscitative fluid of choice for, for trauma patients, right? Like five or six liters of normal saline. Does that sound about right? Well, we, we follow our old ATLS algorithm of two liters of normal saline <laughs> up front. Actually, we carry cold sword whole blood on every mission. And we have been since about 2015. We stood up our pre-hospital blood program with our medics in 2013. And that started with PRBCs and has now transitioned to Olo titer whole blood. And on this mission, they had a total of four units on the objective that night. So at this point, we're starting to transfuse blood. We've got a junctional tourniquet on. We've got large bore access to give that blood through. What happens next? Well, the patient is actually conscious throughout this and is talking to the medics and is telling them that he's having difficulty breathing. And so with Sergeant Abel now, the junior medic, Sergeant Bowen directs him to evaluate his breathing and he notices that he has poor rise and fall of the left side of his chest. And we definitely know there's an injury to the right side of the chest as well. Okay, so we have a suspected chest injury. What can we do about that? Our initial treatment of choice is a needle decompression. And so we use either a 10 or a 14 gauge. We've moved to the, between the fourth and fifth intercostal space in the anterior axillary line as our primary choice for needle decompression with our medics. I think a lot of people have moved past the midclavicular line, just a, a space or two down in the second or third to these other locations. The data coming out of the Armed Forces Medical Examiner on all our deceased service members is showing that needles in the second to third intercostal space are not making it into the thoracic wall. And so we have moved for that reason to the fourth or fifth intercostal space. I love it. Yeah, a lot of anatomic things that could happen for the ranger population. It could be because of, you know, massive pectoral muscles. My population is probably a little bit less massive pectoral, a little bit more, you know, obesity. But a lot of the times, even with very long needles, you're just not getting to where you think that you ought to be. Hence the discussion of other locales. In this case, they did notice that there was a lot of hemorrhage from the chest. And so very quickly after doing actually a couple of needle decompressions where the patient responded and said that his breathing was better, they actually moved on and placed a left-sided chest tube. Unfortunately, the right-sided chest tube, which was being prepped as the patient was moved, it fell into the dirt and they could not place it. Okay, so to recap, we've got our junctional tourniquet on, we're given whole blood, we've got the large bore access, we've decompressed the chest. Now what happens? At this point, one of the best aspects of medicine on the battlefield is evacuate your patient. And so they try to move their patient for evacuation. Okay, and then what happens? Unfortunately, they walk out into the open and are ambushed in the middle of an open field. Unfortunately, they're getting shot at and they can't even stand up. They're lying behind dirt berms and trying to continue to care for this patient. They've actually, at this point, given him two units of whole blood. Uh, the first unit went in incredibly fast. 
And what they're transfusing to is a mental status as well as a palpable radial pulse. We very rarely have blood pressure cuffs on the battlefield. And so mental status and just a palpable pulse is their objective for uh, transfusion and for the resuscitation. I, I love it. And this has had multiple different terms about how it's, you know, described as whether we're tolerating hypotension. But really, I think that, you know, making sure that you have some decent perfusion with the radial pulse. And then I find the mental status in particular to be like really, really helpful to figure out exactly what blood pressure I should be driving my trauma patients to. Yeah. And this one's tricky because obviously the patient was in pain and they were treating him concurrently with ketamine as well. And so he was receiving both IM as well as IV ketamine during this time. But as the ketamine would wear off, his mental status would come back. And so they were still able to track it. And these medics were, you know, as this is going on, they're thinking so clearly. It's just so impressive to me as their medical director and that they were turning down, they're slowing down and, and speeding up the rate of transfusion based on his response during all this. As all this is happening, what, what occurs next? They're trying to transfuse this patient and unfortunately they get the call that there's another casualty and they ask to have him brought to their location and this patient runs up holding his neck, bleeding profusely after taking a grenade fragment to the left side of his neck. Okay, so we have a penetrating neck trauma. Uh, I'm pretty sure our tourniquets aren't going to be ideal here. What should we do for this patient? Sergeant Bowen is a little busy with the first critical patient and tells him to put pressure on it. And the patient tries and, and actually says, I can't. And so Sergeant Bowen reaches into the neck wound and puts his middle finger into the, the wound itself and actually gets the bleeding to stop temporarily but then notices a large hematoma forming and his airway shifting over to the side. So yet another pearl for our civilian colleagues, lots and lots of wounds, be they relatively superficial like scalp lacerations or deeper injuries like this, do a lot better with pinpoint pressure. Yeah, I just want to highlight again there too, like Ryan said, we already got our medics of basically the worst trauma patient that, that you can imagine. And then uh, another patient runs up holding his neck with uh, impending airway disaster. And, and you got to deal with that in the dark, on the ground while being shot at. Okay, so in this really easy patient scenario where in the dark you're trying to manage this airway with a hematoma developing, so we, we know that the clock is ticking, that if you wait very long, this isn't gonna go well. What do these medics do? They prep a crike kit and Sergeant Bowen proceeds to perform a cricothyroidotomy while lying down in the prone and under night vision goggles only and, and by feel because he can't turn on a single light. I've taught my residents for years how to do crikes, and we often talk about it as if it was a blind procedure because once you make your incision, very often your visual field is full of blood, and therefore you can't directly see. However, we don't actually talk about them doing it in a prone position where they can't even see the neck directly while wearing goggles while doing this challenging procedure. Fortunately, we actually prepare our medics for this situation. This is something we, we train with them. Obviously, the junior medics aren't quite to this level, but the more senior medics, as they're getting up in their training, this is absolutely part of their training pipeline, and we make them do this during their training events. My interns will be thrilled to hear about my upcoming airway sim where I'm going to turn off the lights and make them lie down and then maybe shoot at them over their head. I, I, I think we may have to slightly tone this down a bit. <laughs> so... So while they're doing this crike, uh, they, they get the airway. Uh, what happens next? 
The second patient from the neck had actually had a massive amount of hemorrhage from that neck wound. And there was that quick debate of whether they should use the last unit of blood and give that to the neck wounded patient versus continue to transfuse patient one when they didn't know if they could evacuate him as this was now their last unit of blood. And Sergeant Bowen made the decision to go all in on patient one. And at that time, they called for the ROLO protocol, which stands for Ranger Olo Titer Blood Transfusion Protocol. Before we discuss this ROLO protocol, I'd like to emphasize that very commonly after a crike, there is some bleeding. And then using some sort of closure, such as suturing or something like that, can help slow that. This patient had lost a lot of blood even before the crike happened. So we have every reason to, to think that they were in hemorrhagic shock before this dangerous procedure occurred, correct? Correct. And we also teach our medics that with these wartime injuries that we don't want to get behind on their resuscitation. And so uh, since we don't have blood pressures and since we don't have some of these diagnostic measures on the battlefield, we want them to aggressively resuscitate for hemorrhage because hemorrhage is what's killing trauma patients. All right. And so you mentioned the ROLO protocol. What, what is that about? What we do is we pre-screen our ranger population and we basically come up with a walking blood bank that can be used at the point of injury without any further screening. And so we back home, we identify who is a OLO titer donor that has O-type blood and has low titers to anti-A and anti-B antibodies. And we identify them, we pre-screen them for any transfusion-related diseases. We counsel them on the need to maintain a healthy lifestyle. And then we create lists and we rehearse and practice and train to be able to quickly draw a unit of blood off of that list of individuals and transfuse that blood back to wounded patients. Wait, 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 wait. What the what? So just to be clear, Mel Hibberty, this is crazy. So these are soldiers that have been screened that are universal donors and they're otherwise healthy and they got no other bugs and stuff in them. And they're walking around the battlefield, doing battlefield things, no doubt getting shot at. And then somebody taps them on the shoulder and say, hey, there's a dude or dudette over there that needs your blood. Come here. They take out, you know, a couple of pints and stick it in the other person. Yeah, that's right. These people are walking blood banks in the field of action. Ray Cray. Wow. So we have a walking blood bank. Okay, we've got one patient who's had massive blood loss and has a crike. We have another patient that has lost an arm, a leg, and has a huge hole in the side that we're transfusing multiple units through. What happens next? They call for the ROLO protocol and they immediately have the first couple of donors come forward and Sergeant Abel draws off initially two units from ROLO donors and they continue to transfuse blood to patient number one. And they again are continuing to transfuse to mental status and a radial pulse. And during that time, they make the decision to evacuate and they move to a second location in order to get a helicopter and get out. In the background during all of this, there's an active firefight occurring. And I, I know that whenever I've donated blood, I, I usually get, uh, I don't know why, but it's always Nutter Butters. You know, you get your Nutter Butters, maybe a can of Coke or something like that, and they let you sit for 20 minutes. I imagine that these rangers didn't have the privilege of 20 minutes of kicking their feet up and having some Nutter Butters after giving a unit of blood. They got the equivalent of their Nutter Butters. They were put right back into the fight. And a couple of them actually did some pretty heroic things immediately after giving blood. Okay, so, so the decision was now made to evacuate. It sounds like things were, I, I hesitate to use the word safe, but safe enough to risk an evacuation at this point, correct? Correct. So they moved again. 
and walked into another ambush. So once again, this time they're taking fire from about 15 meters away from a building. It was very close, very effective, as well as starting to take mortar fire or indirect fire. So they have explosions coming in around them as well as the direct machine gun fire impacting around them. And so they're keeping their patients comfortable, but they're also keeping their patients safe. And Sergeant Bowen and Abel are, as large munitions are coming in, and you can actually hear them come in as, as they're impacting. As they hear these large munitions come in, they cover their patients with their own bodies and shield their patients from any injury to keep them safe, as well as covering their ears from the loud explosions, because at this point they had to take their patients' hearing protection off. Wow, absolutely incredible. So after this repeated ambush, because this is what, firefight number three, what happens next? They finally get evacuation in, and they've drawn off three units of Rolo blood. They've given a total of seven units of blood to patient number one on the ground, and a helicopter comes in, and the way we load these things is everybody loads first, and then patients are last so that we can get them off the helicopter first. Okay, so they're, they're loaded into the helicopter, and I imagine that this is only the first part of a long saga of taking care of these individuals. Yeah, so the helicopter's loading, our medics are the last ones onto the aircraft. Sergeant Abel is on the ramp as the ramp is closing, continuing to shoot back at the enemy as the helicopters are taking fire and they continue to treat en route. It's about a 15 minute time of flight to a surgeon and they had an additional three units of blood that they were able to transfuse to the first patient while en route. And they get to the FST, which is a forward surgical team. And it's a single surgeon, single bed that's stationed on the battlefield. All right. So once they're able to get them to the surgical team, how long total were they out there in the midst of fire while these critically ill folks were there? It was a little over two hours. I, I got to say, in two hours, you know, the number of things that happened to these folks, you know, huge number of units of blood given to them, the use of tourniquets, the decompression of the chest, performing a crike. That would be difficult to do in a well-lit trauma bay. The fact that they did all of that while moving their patient and while being shot at the entire time is absolutely heroic. I completely agree. And they were actually just recently awarded with Silver Stars, which is the nation's third highest award for bravery on the battlefield. When I first heard about this story, one, it, it honestly puts like every action movie I've ever heard of to shame, to be honest, because it all actually happened. And number two, I was actually struck by like how humble these guys were. We actually attempted to get them to tell a little bit of their own story. And I get the impression that they really didn't want to talk about it much, that it was just part of their job somehow, despite their heroic actions. That's really all I've, I've heard Sergeant Abel and Sergeant Bowen say is they're doing their job. That's what they were trained to do. And anybody else would have done it. It's simply incredible. And we are so incredibly thankful for all the stuff that, that not just the Ranger Battalions are doing, but all the military folks are, are, are doing to, to try to keep us safe. It's absolutely humbling to be in their presence on a daily basis. It's, it's been the, the job of a lifetime. And every time I get to interact with these young medics, I am just humbled and thankful to have this opportunity. We want to preserve the privacy of some of these soldiers by not using any names or anything like that. But can you give us a, a vague idea of what happened to these uh, soldiers after they were evacuated from the initial scene? Absolutely. So as uh, Ryan said, they, they moved to the FST, that uh, forward surgical team, as the next step in care. And obviously the, the critical care is just starting and continuing from uh, what the, the medics did on the ground there. And Casualty 1 uh, underwent Reboa and ultimately had a, an ECMO team fly from San Antonio to meet him in the combat deployed area there. 
and uh, and flew back. He got over over 200 units uh, blood transfused before returning to the states. Multiple operations, and uh, fortunately didn't didn't have to undergo ECMO, but did need uh, renal replacement therapy, and and is still recovering, uh, doing better better today. Casualty two also was was evacuated, and he's actually returned uh, to full duty and and has deployed to combat again since then. So both casualties survived and are doing well. Absolutely incredible, and we'll be sure to include in the show notes a way if you'd like to donate some money to that that first casualty. I'm sure he's going to have a long-term recovery that he's going to need. And if that is something that motivates you, I strongly encourage you to do so. I'd like to thank the producers of MRAP for a generous contribution to the Lead the Way Fund, a charitable organization that helps service members. In lieu of any compensation for this piece, myself, Dr. Knight, and Dr. Moore requested for MRAP to make a charitable contribution, and we really appreciate they did so. We'd encourage listeners that are so motivated to also consider this as well. Summary. All right, so let's summarize a few take-home points. Number one, it's absolutely amazing what medics are are able to do across the military, across operational and tactical medicine. They're they're putting themselves on the line to take care of patients in a really, really unsafe place. You need to know how to use a tourniquet. That is one of the most important pieces of resuscitation equipment you have for traumas. If you don't already have one in your car, you need to get one in your car. You need to make sure that you properly have them in your department as well. A blood pressure cuff is pretty good, but I'll be honest, a cat tourniquet's a lot smaller volume, a lot better. So learn how to use these devices and you'll save some lives. Number two, we want to give lots and lots of blood, trying to do a balanced resuscitation. Most centers aren't going to have whole blood, so instead we're going to break that up into components, but keeping it as balanced as possible is going to save the day much of the time. And number three, know when you need to evacuate a patient. If you're at a smaller shop and you don't have an advanced trauma surgeon, may be the case that you have to do a transfer of a semi-stable patient. And with that, I'd like to really thank you guys both. Ryan, Charlie, thank you so much for being here. No, thank you, Dan. Thanks, Dan. The last year and a half has been absolutely 100% dominated by COVID to the point that we've missed some updates in areas outside of COVID. We're gonna try and remedy that situation starting in the cardiology corner. Dr. Amol Matu. Amol, you sent me a 66 page tour de force from the European Society of Cardiology entitled 2019 ESC Guidelines for the Management of Patients with Supraventricular Tachycardia. You know it's a must read because there's not one but two Brugadas in the author list. <laughs> and while these do date back to 2019, I think they are still relevant. Absolutely. You know, SVT may seem like kind of a, a mundane, less exciting arrhythmia amongst the various arrhythmias we take care of, but it's still an important topic. And I also think it's always worth knowing about the cardiology guidelines that have some relevance to us in emergency medicine. And so that's why I sent you this 66-page novel to talk about. I completely agree with you. You're right. We do see this often. We feel pretty comfortable with it, but always good to see if our knowledge should move forward based on the expert recommendations. But a lot of this document is cardiology or EP centric. We're going to try and narrow it down to the ED relevant stuff. Let's dive into the differential, starting with narrow and regular. Narrow and regular tachycardia. So this is a great differential. There's really three main entities. When you see a narrow regular tachycardia, you're dealing with most commonly sinus tachycardia and also atrial flutter with two to one and then SVT. And within that term SVT, we tend to clump a lot of things, including AV nodal reentry tachycardia, AV reentrant tachycardia, junctional ectopic tachycardia, ectopic atrial tachycardia, and a few other things. 
And I think it's reasonable to clump them all together because they tend to be treated fairly similarly with AV nodal blockers. And then some of the purists out there will also say, you know, you should include high septal or fascicular ventricular tachycardia, which is a type of VTAC, which usually is relatively benign. And it can be less than 120 milliseconds, but it's not that common. So when we talk about narrow regular, again, sinus tach, A flooded with two to one, and generally SVT. The one caveat, Swami, that I'll add is that sometimes you deal with really rapid AFib. And when things get really rapid to our eyes, it starts looking regular. And so I think it's always worth just pulling out those calipers with super rapid rates and truly making sure it's regular. Because sometimes really rapid AFib can masquerade as what looks like a regular rhythm. And obviously the treatment there is different. And also with that kind of wastebasket where you're saying that we treat a lot of these the same, they're also can be really hard to tease out in the moment. And it needs an electrophysiologist in a lab sometimes to really tease these things apart. And since the management is going to be pretty much the same for us, I think it is reasonable to bring those together. And I agree with you. We've got sinus tack, AVNRT, and A flutter as the most common things that we are dealing with. Treatment. And when we look at treatment, obviously with sinus tack, treat the underlying cause. With flutter, we've discussed fib in the past many times, and the treatment of fib and flutter is pretty similar. AVNRT is probably the first tachydysrhythmia I ever learned about outside of sinus tachycardia in terms of management, in terms of presentation. It's probably the first one I ever treated as a resident. And I think we generally agree, and the guidelines agree, that if the patient is unstable, we should go to electricity. Let's take that one off the table for a moment. And let's come to the stable group because there's a lot more discussion here. Adenosine. This set of recommendations gives a class one recommendation for adenosine in that group. But we recently had Justin Morgenstern on talking about calcium channel blockers instead of adenosine. So Amal, why should we go with adenosine first? Or at least why do these guidelines place adenosine first? First of all, I, just as a reminder, I think it's always worth trying vagal maneuvers first. You can do the Valsalva or the modified Valsalva, and we won't get into details there. But vagals should always be the first thing that you try because it's quick and easy and it's very benign. In terms of adenosine, you know, I, I know Justin was very negative about adenosine for really good reasons. But to be honest with you, Swami, I, I don't tell Justin this, but I still like adenosine. I, I think it's fast. It works nicely. And to be honest with you, if you stand there at the bedside and you talk the patient through it, they tend to tolerate it really, really well. Justin was negative about it because of the side effects, and, and it does make people feel bad. It makes people feel like they've got chest pressure and shortness of breath, and they get flushing for about 10 seconds. But what I usually do is I'll tell the patient, look, you know, Mr. Jones, for the next 10 seconds, this medicine is going to make you feel hot, flushed, some shortness of breath, chest pressure even. And when you feel that, you know it's working. So it's almost like they start looking forward to it. And when they start, and I tell them, when you feel it, let me know. And as soon as they let me know, with them, I count to 10. And it goes away. And they really tolerate it well. This isn't the type of thing you shove the adenosine. You tell the nurse, give adenosine, I'm going to go see the next patient, and then you come back. Now you stand there at the bedside, you hold her hand, you walk them through it, and, and they tend to tolerate it really, really well. There's a couple other benefits to adenosine aside from the fact that it's fast and effective. It's not hemodynamically destabilizing. And then the other nice thing about adenosine is that if it doesn't work at all, then that is suggestive of uh, septal VTAC, or perhaps you just gave the inadequate dose. 
If it transiently slows things down and then speeds back up, then you're probably dealing with uh, sinus tachycardia or a fascicular atrial tachycardia. If it transiently slows things down, sometimes you see the flutter waves come out and you realize that it's atrial flutter. So in some cases, even when it doesn't work, it can be somewhat diagnostic as well. The caveat here, of course, is it's got to be given really, really quickly. Use a good IV, you know, an 18 or 20 gauge antecubital. I even have the patient hold their arm up in the air to get a gravity assist. You push it in and you follow it up immediately with a very rapid saline push. Or as Michelle Lynn and a few other people have talked about, you just combine the adenosine with the saline in one big syringe and you've got to shove it in. I tell the nurses, if you don't hear it whoosh, you didn't push it fast enough. And it tends to work very nicely. And some of the things that you outlined there of limitations for adenosine in terms of having a good IV, having it close, those actually might be reasons to not use adenosine. If you can't get a good IV, if you can't get something large enough and you don't think you're going to be able to give that fast push. Beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. Which brings us to the other two medications you mentioned, calcium channel blockers, beta blockers. If you weren't going to use adenosine, which of these would you choose? Do you have a preference of one over the other? Sure. Both are great choices. They're both class 2A in these guidelines. I don't have a strong preference of one over the other. Well, I'll take that back. I have a slight preference towards using diltiazem just because I've used it so many times in my career. Verapamil, five milligrams as a slow push over a couple minutes works very nicely. Or diltiazem, 10 or 15 milligrams. If it's a big hefty person, 20 milligrams slow push over a couple of minutes works very nicely. If a patient is already on a beta blocker though, Oftentimes, I'll, I'll go with the beta blocker because their body's already accustomed to it. And I'll give them metoprolol. That's my drug of choice because it's easy and it's just a five milligram dose given over a couple of minutes or so. The guidelines actually say 2.5 milligram boluses of metoprolol, which I thought was really wimpy. Uh, five milligrams is the dose that we'll typically use. So again, no big difference between the beta blockers, calcium channel blockers. Use what you're comfortable with. But in general, if a patient's already on one class or the other, that's the class I go with. The one other point that I would just make as well is that the general recommendations are that you shouldn't combine them. So don't give one or two doses of a calcium channel blocker, then switch over and give one or two doses of a beta blocker or vice versa. Just stay with one class and continue dosing that class. Eventually, you're going to get there. Now, the, the guidelines make that recommendation. Don't switch classes. Every textbook out there says don't mix the drugs. Don't start with one class and then move to the second class. And we've all learned that before. And I've never found a good reference for that. We actually did a lit search and couldn't find any good evidence to say why you're not supposed to switch from beta blockers to calcium channel blockers IV and combine them. But again, just be aware that most every recommendation out there will probably give you an unreferenced statement that if you start with calcium channel blockers IV, don't start adding beta blockers IV or vice versa. So I don't know where that came from, but yeah, I guess it makes sense. So good to have all of these options. We're going to start with vagal maneuvers. Then we can use adenosine. If you have a problem with adenosine or the patient has a problem with it, because I've had that pop up before, patient who's had AVNRT before, they really don't want adenosine again. You can reach for a calcium channel blocker or a beta blocker, depending on the patient circumstance, what they might already be on, but we're going to try not to mix those agents. Regular and wide tachycardia. Let's move from there to the regular wide QRS tachycardias. What's our differential here? 
that's a pretty easy differential. You start with ventricular tachycardia. The second possibility is VTAC. The third possibility is VTAC. And the fourth possibility is maybe sinus tach with the bundle branch block pattern. If you see PQRS, 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 and so on. And then the, the last possibility is ventricular tachycardia also. So <laughs> obviously you're trying to make the point here. Yes, SVT with a bundle branch block pattern is possible, but you've got to be really, really careful about ever making that diagnosis. And uh, I, what I would say is that if you ever see a regular wide complex tachycardia and you diagnose SVT with a bundle, you do so at your peril and the peril of the patient as well, because Gosh, it's just such a difficult diagnosis to make, and it's it's a diagnosis that you make with risk. Amo, we've heard you talk about this before. We've heard you say that a lot of the algorithms that are there for differentiating ventricular tachycardia from SVT are very cumbersome. And actually, the authors of this guideline kind of say the same thing. They make a big point of saying that we should assume it's ventricular tachycardia unless you can clearly establish that it's not ventricular tachycardia. And in general, we're not going to do that. We're not going to be making that clear establishment. We're going to defer that because, again, these guidelines are, are really directed more at cardiologists and they're telling them to assume that it's ventricular tachycardia. I'm going to assume it's ventricular tachycardia. But for the sake of completeness, are there specific features in the EKG that might push you towards that wide SVT? Well, you know, again, it's a really dangerous thing to do. If, if you use any of the published criteria that are out there, you're guaranteed to miss at least... 10, in some cases, as many as 40% of cases of ventricular tachycardia. In the article, they said that the algorithms have only about a 75% sensitivity for picking up VTAC, which means you might be missing as many as 25% of your cases of VTAC if you use the algorithm. So I would say no, with one exception. And the only exception I would give you is that if you happen to have the patient's baseline 12 lead ECG, and at baseline, the patient has a bundle branch block pattern, which, and here's the second part of that, which looks exactly identical in every 12, every one of those 12 leads. So in other words, you've got the baseline 12 lead and the QRS complexes look exactly the same at baseline as they do in all 12 of the tachycardic EKG leads. In that case, then yeah, maybe you can say, ah, this Regular white complex tachycardia is simply SVT with the bundle because the QRS complexes look exactly the same as when they are in sinus rhythm. But if you don't have a baseline EKG and the QRS complexes don't look exactly the same in all 12 leads, I think you've got to call it VTAC. Now, the one other thing that I would suggest is to consider using Lewis leads. If you have a stable patient, you can use, you can repeat the 12 lead using the Lewis lead technique. Some of you have heard of it before. Some of you know what this is. And it's a little bit difficult on an audio podcast to describe this. So just Google this. And essentially, you're, you're going to repeat the 12 lead, simply changing the position of three leads. All the other leads stay the same. You simply move three electrodes and then repeat the 12 lead. And oftentimes, you can bring out the atrial flutter or bring out the sinus activity and you can truly distinguish between VTAC versus some type of supraventricular tachycardia. So it's, it's worth giving the Lewis lead a shot in a stable patient. I'm trying to bring back Lewis Swami. <laughs> um, I, I think this is a really great technique if your patient is stable enough to get a second EKG. 
And all you do is you repeat the EKG, changing the position of three leads. And many times you can distinguish, truly distinguish between VTAC versus a flutter with the bundle or sinus tack with the bundle or something else like that. So take a look on Google for that. Maybe they can put a picture of the lead replacement positions in the show notes. I really like the fact that you focus on the fact that even if you have an old EKG, the complexes need to look exactly the same because of course, a patient who has a bundle branch at baseline, a bundle branch block at baseline can still have ventricular tachycardia today. So it doesn't Absolutely. mean that they, right. So that's really an important thing for us to, to focus in on. Treatment. In terms of treatment, if the patient's unstable, we're going with electricity. So let's take that one off the table and let's focus on the stable patient once again. We've got a stable patient with a wide complex, regular tachydysrhythmia. And yes, you are defaulting to VT, but SVT is still in your head. In terms of treatment of that stable patient, what are you reaching for? Well, again, it's worth trying vagal maneuvers. Typically, VTAC will not respond to a vagal maneuver. So if they convert with vagals, in all likelihood, nothing's 100% medicine, but in all likelihood, it was an SVT. They also suggest using adenosine. They give adenosine a class 2A rating because they say it can be therapeutic and also diagnostic. And I have a little bit of debate with that. And I've talked about this before, and it's always a controversial issue. There's about 10% of cases of VTAC which are known as adenosine sensitive. So about 10% of your VTACs may actually convert with adenosine. And if that happens, what are you going to do now? Are you going to assume that because they converted with adenosine that it must be an SVT? And if you make that assumption, what are you doing? Swami, do you admit all of your SVTs? They mostly go home. And most of those patients yeah. are discharged home. And, and that could be a real problem because if it turns out it was adenosine-sensitive VTAC and you assumed it's an SVT because they converted with adenosine, you're sending that patient home. They really need to go to the EP lab to find out what's actually going on. And so I don't like using adenosine as a diagnostic challenge because it just adds confusion. To me, it's kind of like giving Maalox to a chest pain patient. If your patient's having a heart attack, yeah, they, they can sometimes, oftentimes, get better with Maalox. What are you going to do with that patient now? Are you going to assume that it's not cardiac? And I think that's the problem with the adenosine. The other problem that they bring up with the adenosine is that if it turns out your patient with the regular white complex tachycardia actually had antidromic SVT with WPW, well, adenosine can, in some cases, turn SVTs into AFib transiently for a few minutes. I've done that a few times before where I've had narrow SVTs, give them adenosine, and they turn into AFib. Well, if you have an AFib WPW patient, that patient can decompensate. And so the article talks about the fact that they really don't like the, the idea of using adenosine unless you know for sure that it's not pre-excitation because some of those patients can turn into AFib, which is a disaster if the patient has underlying WPW. So again, what do we do for these patients? First thing, I try vagal. I'm not a big fan of adenosine, though they do endorse it. And then if those aren't working, what's the medication of choice? I think procainamide is still the, the best medication to go with. It's something that many of us are familiar with here in the U.S. And uh, studies comparing procainamide versus amiodarone have shown procainamide is more successful than amiodarone. And in this guideline, they give procainamide a class 2A rating. Amiodarone gets a class 2B rating. So I am happy to see that in the European guidelines. Un unfortunately, I don't know if you knew this, Swami, but 
In the American Heart Association, they recently changed the guidelines to give procainamide and amiodarone an identical class rating. And I don't know why they did that because all the recent literature has said procainamide's better. But despite that, the AHA has uh, made procainamide and amiodarone identical class ratings in the US. So I like the European guidelines here. So if we see this again, we're going to assume it's ventricular tachycardia. We're going to treat it as ventricular tachycardia. I know some clinicians, myself included, have jumped to electricity even in the patient who's relatively stable, knowing that that's going to terminate things quickly. But if we're reaching for a medication, procainamide is better than amiodarone based on the best data that we have that's reflected in these guidelines. Irregular and wide tachycardia. Let's then bridge from regular to irregular. And, you know, we've talked ad nauseum about narrow and irregular and atrial fibrillation. But I think what we want to focus a little bit more on is irregular and wide which we don't see nearly as much. And when you see irregular and wide, what's popping into your head as, this is what I have to think about? One of the things in the differential is polymorphic VTAC. And let's just kind of move that aside to start with. Polymorphic VTAC usually is really fast. It's very irregular. And those patients almost always are going to become unstable if it persists. So you're going to shock those patients and we kind of know what to do about polymorphic VTAC. So let's move that aside. I think the question is a little bit more difficult when we're talking about more reasonable rates. And then we're asking, is this AFib with a bundle branch block pattern or is this AFib with pre-excitation or WPW? There's a huge distinction there. If it's AFib with just a bundle branch block pattern, then you're just going to go with a beta blocker or calcium channel blocker, whatever it is that you normally do for AFib. That's what you do when you're dealing with AFib plus a bundle. However, If you're dealing with AFib with WPW, that's an entirely different animal. And in that case, you've got to stay away from all of your AV nodal blockers because those will kill the patient fast. Beta blockers, contraindicated calcium channel blockers, adenosine, digoxin, those are all absolutely contraindicated. And also, here's a really important point, amiodarone is part beta blocker and calcium channel blocker. So amiodarone is contraindicated if you're dealing with pre-excitation. So the next question then becomes, well, how do you tell the difference between AFib with the bundle versus AFib with WPW? In almost all cases, pretty much all cases of AFib with WPW, you're going to see rates that get really fast in some places, 200, 250, even 300 beats per minute. And the most important thing is that the QRS complexes are going to be changing in size and width. Usually, if somebody just has a plain old bundle, the QRS complexes look identical all the way across the rhythm strip. But if those QRS complexes are changing significantly in size and width, and in some places getting really fast, you've got to assume that there's underlying WPW and you stay away from all AV nodal blockers or you will kill the patient. And just to restate those AV nodal blockers one more time, adenosine and amiodarone, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, digoxin, All of these medications are out. Now, before we get to treatment, Amal, I just want to ask one other question about these pre-excitation pathways, because the one that we think about in emergency medicine is typically WPW. There are other pre-excitation pathways. Does it make any difference if the patient has one of those pre-excitation pathways instead of WPW in terms of having a wide, irregular rhythm that they're presenting with, or are we going to treat them all the same? I would suggest that from the emergency department standpoint, we're going to treat them all the same. That The article talks about some other pathways, and I think that's a little bit more relevant to the electrophysiologists that are doing catheter ablation. But from the ED standpoint, 
we're going to pretty much treat them all the same. Good. Well, keep things a little bit simple where we can. Treatment. Let's get to treatment itself. Again, if the patient is unstable with a wide complex, irregular tachydysrhythmia, we're going to give them electricity. We're going to move on from the unstable. Let's talk about the stable patient. We have a patient who comes in, they are stable, but they are tachycardic. You get the EKG, it's wide, it's irregular. They're talking to you. What are you reaching for for treatment there? All right. So again, we're talking about the irregularly irregular wide complex tachycardia with changing morphology. So we're worried about pre-excitation. What I would suggest is that sedation and cardioversion is still the best, fastest, and safest way to go. Now, if you really want to use a drug instead of shocking the patient, probably procainamide is going to be the best. Procainamide selectively inhibits the accessory pathway, so it's perfect for these patients. Procainamide gets a class 2A rating. They also put ibutilide in there as class 2A, but I think most emergency physicians are not comfortable with ibutilide. I'm not, and so I'm going with procainamide as 2A. Class 2B, flecainide and propofenone. Again, I'm going with procainamide because I'm more comfortable with that. And then they say that if the drugs don't work, then you can move forward to sedate and shock the patient. But again, I would suggest that if you want to start with sedation and cardioversion, you would be doing possibly the best thing for that patient. Yeah, when I see that EKG, Amal, I get pretty anxious and nervous because it just looks really ugly. And even when the patient has a decent blood pressure in front of me, I still prefer to reach for the sedative and the electricity, knowing that if I wait for the medication to work, if it takes a little bit of time that the patient then becomes more unstable, it makes sedation a little bit trickier. So I tend to reach for electricity in these cases over the drug just for the expeditiousness of fixing it. I totally agree. Special populations. Amal, one other place that we should touch on is some other populations. So if we have pregnant women coming in with these tachydysrhythmias, does that change the drugs that we need to be reaching for or, or are there specific drugs that we cannot reach for in that group? Yeah, it changes things only very slightly. So there is an increased incidence of supraventricular tachycardias during pregnancy. And I, I think I've taken care of maybe at least a half dozen of these patients. I remember when I was a resident, one of my attendings who was in her second or third trimester of pregnancy was pushing on her neck during the shift. And I was like, why are you doing that? She said, I'm having SVT again. So she was giving herself a carotid. <laughs> I was like, oh, please don't pass out. If only a second year, I don't know what I'm doing. But um, anyway, fr from the acute treatment standpoint, number one, if you ever need to cardiovert a patient who's pregnant at any stage of pregnancy, it's considered safe. Very little of the current makes it through the uterus to the fetus. So if you need to cardiovert, go forward, sedate and cardiovert. And that would be a reasonable thing to do if your drugs are not working. Of course, the first thing you want to try is vagal maneuvers. If vagal maneuvers don't work, they actually recommend moving forward towards a beta-1 specific blocker. For example, metoprolol. They specifically say not to use atenolol. I'm not sure why, but go with esmolol, go with metoprolol. That would be your first choice. And then they also suggest using IV digoxin if beta blockers don't work. And of course, if you have time. But uh, I'm just going right to the metoprolol for these patients. They didn't really talk about adenosine. I've seen other recommendations suggesting adenosine safe. I've used adenosine before in pregnant patients, and it's, it's been perfectly fine. But they didn't talk about adenosine. They actually push for beta-1 specific blockers like metoprolol. And they were not big on calcium channel blockers here because there's um, 
some suggestions of fetal problems. Now, I think that's more likely with chronic use of calcium channel blockers. But again, if specifically going by these guidelines, if you have an SVT during pregnancy, number one, vagal. Number two, go with a beta-1 specific blocker like metoprolol. And if that doesn't work, you'd consider DIG. And if you ever need to cardiovert, you can consider that safe at any stage of pregnancy. That last thing you said, I think is really important that electricity is still safe. Because if we have the patient who comes in with the wide, irregular tachydystrophia, they might even have a history of WPW that they can tell you about. I'm probably not going to reach for any of the medications. I mean, we already said not to use amiodarone, but we know amiodarone is not safe. Procainamide, I don't know that we have a ton of data on the safety of procainamide. I would probably be reaching for a little bit of a sedative, which I know is going to be safe, and then the electricity to get them out of that rhythm before there's any harm done. In fact, specifically, amiodarone is not recommended uh, because it can cause fetal thyroid problems because of its iodine content. So amiodarone would be the absolute last thing I would ever think about in any stage of pregnancy. Summary. Starting with those SVTs, things that we see very frequently all the time. And again, for many of us, the first tachydystrophia we ever treated as a resident, using adenosine is fine. Going with a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker instead is also a fine approach. And you're going to have to tailor that a bit to your patient. Remember to try those vagal maneuvers, especially things like the revert, which we've discussed in the past on MRAP, showing a much higher efficacy than standard vagal maneuvers. But try those first while you're getting everything together. If the patient's unstable, go with electricity. In the patients who are wide and regular, we're going to assume ventricular tachycardia and treat as such. Again, if they're unstable, electricity. If they're stable, we can reach for procainamide. We could reach for amiodarone, although procainamide does seem to perform better there. And then in the wide irregular, we are assuming in most cases that is going to be AFib with WPW or some other pre-excitation pathway. We're going to, again, really consider using electricity as our first line, even in the stable patients, because that rhythm can easily degrade into an unstable rhythm. If we want to reach for medications, again, procainamide is probably our safest bet and something that we are fairly comfortable with in the emergency department. Amal, thanks so much for the update. Thanks so much, Swami. I look forward to talking to you again real soon. Last month in Critical Care Mailbag, Swami and Scott Weingart talked about ketamine and atomidate and intubation. This month, we have Darren Brody and Brian Driver also talking about ketamine and intubation, but from a slightly different perspective. Here's what they had to say. From the darkest regions of the New Mexico colonies comes a man so handsome and insightful that his patients have become overwhelmed with breathless... It's Darren Brody. Hello, MRAP listeners. This is Darren Brody sitting in Albuquerque on the phone with Brian Driver in Minneapolis. Brian is a associate professor of emergency medicine. He's a attending physician in the emergency department at Hennepin and the director of clinical research there. And Brian churns out a ton of amazing airway research, and I'm, I'm thrilled to have him here. So let me just set the stage here. In emergency medicine, I think we do a really good job of predicting difficult airways, anatomically difficult airways, and now there's a lot of focus on physiologically difficult airways. These are patients in whom you're really afraid to burn bridges and, and paralyze a patient because you're anatomically concerned that you may not be able to intubate that patient or rescue them if the intubation is unsuccessful, or their physiology is so fragile that you're afraid that any period of apnea 
could be catastrophic. And the classic teaching in a scenario like this is that you should perform an awake intubation, which really means topical anesthesia to overcome gag reflex, other airway reflexes, keep the patient comfortable, and utilize little to no sedation, maybe just the slightest bit to help the patient tolerate the procedure. But that seems to be something that most emergency physicians are are not yet comfortable with. And it's certainly not common practice in EMS. That really leads us to today's topic, where it's intuitively appealing when you have a patient in front of you where you're worried about administering a paralytic to just give a sedative and get the patient intubated that way. And again, I'm not talking about using a topical anesthetic. We're talking about just using a a sedative. And in particular, the crowd favorite, ketamine, where you're thinking, okay, patient is hopefully going to keep breathing. They're going to maintain their airway reflexes. And I'm I'm just going to be able to get the patient intubated. And I never have to worry about the danger of a paralytic. And this goes by different terms. People might say a sedation-facilitated intubation, ketamine-facilitated It's been referred to as a ketamine-only breathing intubation, dissociated awake intubation, although depending on who's talking about it, they may actually be talking about the combination of a sedative and a topical anesthetic. But in common practice in the community, it seems like people are really just talking about the sedative by itself. It's quick, it's easy, we know the drugs, bim, bam, boom, you're done. But The problem here is that, you know, certainly ketamine doesn't cause a lot of muscle relaxation. And anytime you're giving a sedative to a critically ill patient, there is a risk here. You could certainly put that patient into this kind of gray area where they're sedated enough to be unable to protect their airway, but not so sedated that you know, they don't have a gag reflex, right? So that's, that's a bad potential combination, kind of a perfect storm. And I have seen personally some bad outcomes from this. And in fact, in 2012, on an Airway Corner episode, I presented a case that included a ketamine-only intubation with some addition of a topical anesthetic. And then in 2013, looking back, I did a piece talking about ketamine-only intubation in the community. And I really assumed when I did that piece that we would have a ton of evidence by this time to address the concerns with this concept. But it really, it really hasn't happened. I mean, up to now, I think we had a paper in the, in the 90s from Israel looking at you know, less than, I believe, somewhere around 30 patients with about a 65% uh, intubation success rate, not a lot of information on complications. And so that's where Brian's recent paper comes along. And in the paper, is success and complications of the ketamine-only intubation method in the emergency department, which has been published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine. So Brian, thank you you for coming on and thank you for all the work that you do in emergency medicine and airway research. Tell us why you took this on and tell us what you found. So yeah, this was an interesting topic to me because there is a growing interest in using ketamine alone for um, intubation and avoiding a paralytic. You know, as we know, that's kind of how we started out in the 1970s in emergency medicine with sedative only intubations where 
we couldn't yet use neuromuscular blockade until our, our leaders of emergency medicine fought for that to uh, improve the safety of intubation. But recently with the advent of video laryngoscopy in, in bougie use, there are some who feel that using ketamine only could actually be safer in many patients. And so because there's really no data on this, I was curious about it. And we used, you know, the big registry, the National Emergency Airway Registry to try to get some data on this. And so we looked at the latest version of that database from 2016 to 2018, which comprised about 19,000 intubations. Now this registry uh, is from about 25 academic medical centers. Data on every intubation is put into this registry. Now you've heard of the NEAR database before, the National Emergency Airway Registry. In fact, Swami and Scott talked about the NEAR database last month, and they did a nice in-depth critique of using this methodology for airway studies. Now remember, the NEAR database really gives you observational data only, and so therefore there can be bias between different groups as to what technique was selected for their intubation. For a more in-depth discussion, go back and listen to the discussion last month. And so we, we looked at this database, and of those 19,000 intubations, we found that there were 102 that used ketamine only, so not too many. And we wanted a reference standard that was comparable to some group of difficult patients. So we selected those who received topical anesthesia as like the control group or comparator group, and that had 80 patients. So not a large sample size when you're talking about 19,000 to start with. The vast majority of these folks went, uh, underwent RSI. So we compared the ketamine only and topical anesthesia groups, thinking these are both tough groups to intubate, thinking that it would be close to an apples-to-apples comparison, although not perfect. And what we found was that success in the first attempt in ketamine was 61% compared to 85% for topical anesthesia, and that adverse events were more common when used the ketamine only compared to topical anesthesia. During the whole course of intubation, 32% of patients had some adverse event compared to 19% with topical anesthesia. Notably, and this is probably the most feared complication for ketamine only, there were seven patients who vomited, or at least were reporting to have vomited at some point during the course of airway management. So that really speaks to when you look at these two groups of people who are tough to intubate, ketamine was a lower success in the first attempt. Well, some would argue that overall success is much more important when someone's breathing and that complications are more relevant. But we found that complications were uh, indeed higher. This does have some limitations. You know, it's a relatively small study, only, you know, 180 some patients total. It is still the best data we have on ketamine only intubation because it really has been mostly relegated to expert opinion so far and um, not much data has been published. So it definitely has some limitations, but, uh, you know, it's the best data to help you decide whether or not this is something you're going to add to your toolbox. One of the things that's interesting to me is just how few cases there were. If when we look at that data and you kind of look at your experience, and I know you've you know, had lots of conversations with lots of people on this topic, what do we tell people like, okay, this is great. We've taught you how to recognize the difficult airway. We've taught you how this can go badly. What do you tell them that they should be doing? Yeah, this is tough because, you know, skill does vary substantially and experience with different techniques varies substantially. But what I, how we practice at Hennepin and how, you know, we how I like to teach other folks is to me, it's really a dichotomy between completely awake. And then just as you said, with a little bit of sedation, if you really need it, but try to do primarily a topical anesthesia approach. So that's one side of the spectrum. The other side is 
complete control with RSI and then be ready to back up with an electroglock device and cricothyrotomy. The in-between area, which I know some people have reported to be highly successful and have few complications, you know, we just don't have data on that. And so I, we, I tend to stay away from that just because I like having the c- complete control during awake and complete control during RSI. It does involve some tools that not everyone might be familiar with, but I, I think if you're doing RSI, you definitely have the skills and ability to do a topical anesthesia intubation and use an endoscope. These things seem foreign because they're not commonly done, but I think it's not technically hard. And now with disposable scopes, I think it's more accessible. I'd like to see more people expand their skill set a little bit. And I certainly practice, I think, the the same way. I think the middle ground is appealing. It just doesn't seem in my hands to work out as well. And I would add that you don't need an endoscope to do many awake intubations. They can be done with video laryngoscopy. And I I mean, I love the endoscope. I think it's a, you know an amazing tool. And like you said, they're not as cost prohibitive as they used to be. And there's courses out there where you can go and, and learn that that skill set. But the actual part of the actual act of applying some topical anesthesia to the airway is not difficult. And you know, this evidence would suggest that we can't just do away with that and just go this other route. And it is still worthwhile for people practicing in this setting to have that skill set to perform an a, a topicalized awake intubation with or without some addition of sedation as well. And there's some variability as to how much sedation you might use, but I think it is more complicated for the EMS folks out there where I spend so much of my life, where it is at this point, very uncommon to have any training or provision of supplies for awake intubation. And at the same time, it's very common to not have paralytics available. And so you, you really are in a much more complicated situation, in which case ketamine only may be the best you have. But to think that that's going to be perfectly safe and easy is probably, unfortunately, uh, is wishful thinking. I would remind listeners that paralytics actually make bag mask ventilation easier and will facilitate the placement of an extraglottic device much better. And so really, you know, there's, there's multiple reasons to be really comfortable with all aspects of medication-facilitated airway management with the use of a paralytic and at the other end of the spectrum to be comfortable with the awake intubation option with or without small amounts of sedation. So Brian, as always, Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for asking the questions, looking for the data, and then for coming to share it with us. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Darren. Appreciate it. Summary. Darren Brody and Brian Driver had a great conversation about a study that Brian recently did of a subset of patients in the very large NEAR database. Brian and his co-authors looked carefully at a small group of patients who received ketamine only and compared them to another small group of patients who received topical anesthesia only. The patients who received ketamine only or sedation only without the use of paralytics or the use of topical anesthesia had complications in this observational data. In the end, Darren and Brian both recommend that probably the best answer is to stay in a category of intubation where you have complete control. Whether that means you're intubating with RSI and full paralysis, you have complete control, or 
you're in the zone where you're doing an awake intubation with good topical anesthesia and whatever tools you have access to and are comfortable with, one of those two scenarios is probably the better way to go. Choosing a middle ground where you're using sedative-only intubation, whether it be propofol, whether it be ketamine, is an area where not much data supports your practice and can be fraught with complications. And you're not really getting the benefit of either the paralytic giving you the best view ever or the topical anesthesia, which allows you to leave the patient completely awake. So you can pick the high road, you can pick the low road, but probably don't pick that road in between or you'll fall off the cliff. You can pick the high road and you can pick the low road, but probably don't pick that road in between. Or you'll fall off the cliff. That's enough. That's enough. Stop it. Hot your waist. We recently got a listener question requesting that we discuss the urine drug screen. I gotta say, I was a little surprised we hadn't covered it. I don't think we order them that much as part of our assessment, but we do get asked by other services to order these pretty frequently. And it raises the question, do they know something we don't know? So let's dive into this with our resident toxicologist, Dr. Jeff LaPointe. Jeff, welcome back to MRAP. Jeff LaPointe. Glad to be back, especially, I mean, you picked you know, my bane, the bane of my existence, <laughs> right? You picked my arch nemesis. Your residents tell me you love the urine drug screen. So yeah, let's set yeah. the record straight. When we get a urine drug screen, what is that urine drug screen actually testing for? You are initiating the drug testing, you know, chain, right? And so you're looking for metabolites generally from amphetamines, cannabinoids, cocaine, opioids. PCP, some places might have some other things added and you have to know what, what your shop has. But basically it's this screen that is seeing if a preset immunoassay, so just imagine like a claw or something, and anything that fits into there, it's going to read as positive. So there's, there's a structure there, it's just an immunoassay, and if it binds, it's going to say positive or negative. And as you said, it's only testing for a limited number of things, but I guess our real question has to be is how accurate are these results? If I get a urine drug screen for whatever reason, and it comes back positive for benzodiazepines, for instance, how sure can I be that the patient used benzodiazepines? So I guess there's, I can answer your question with a question a little bit. Are you asking how sure can you be that the patient was exposed to benzodiazepines or how sure can you be that the patient's altered mental status in front of you at that time is due to benzodiazepines? Well, that, that is kind of the, the crux of the question, right? Let's take the first part first. How certain can I be that the patient was exposed to benzodiazepines? There are false positives and false negatives for benzodiazepines. It depends on the structure of it. And, and so, you know, clonazepam and alprazolam, a couple of the other ones, they might not show as a positive. Diazepam might show up. Lorazepam might not. It all depends on the immunoassay being designed to bind a structure. So if anything fits in there, and there are false positives too, sertraline, um, oxyprozin, some, some uh, antiretrovirals, anything that fits in there is going to read as a positive. So it might be a true positive, it might not. The real question is, how concordant or discordant was it to your pretest probability? So look, not that accurate. Lots of false positives, many false negatives. Um, you can't really be very sure. Now, this is going to go to confirmatory testing. Sometimes at some shops, you have to request confirmatory testing where it goes to GCMS. 
And then you might find out exactly what it is a week later. And the second part of that question that you asked me was, how can I know that the benzodiazepine is why the patient's altered? Jeff, the thing is, in the emergency department, we often get these patients with vague or, or undifferentiated, no, no real information as to why the patient is altered. So this patient comes into me, they are altered. I have very little data about what was going on, what they took or didn't take, or, or what other circumstances were going on. I get a urine drug screen. It's positive for benzos. Doesn't that help me in some way, shape, or form? Yeah, I wish. Only on TV, right? You know, like, it, because the, the philosophy of it is well-intentioned. And people don't want to use something that's, that's I mean, the, the whole reason people are listening is because they want to get better. But yeah, like, it, it, it's, no one wants to use the wrong thing. But no, it, it is not useful. Because that person could have taken a benzo two days ago. Let's say they, they, took, um, they took diazepam. It's metabolized, you know, and broken down and the little tiny claw that is the, the urine drug screen picks that up and says, benzos are here. But it has nothing to do with while they're there. It could cause you to miss the head bleed or the meningitis or something else. So it really doesn't have a bearing on at least my practice at all. And I'm, I'm betting a lot of your listeners feel the same way. But no, even it, when it's right, it can still be wrong. And there's a lot in what you just said, missing the patient with the head bleed or the meningitis. This is part of the problem, because even if the test was really good to say that the patient was exposed to it, it might lead us to premature diagnostic closure and say, oh, it's just the benzo. Right. Right. And we, we think about how you order other tests, like think about how difficult it can be to interpret an ethanol concentration in the ED. Like think about that. And so you get an ethanol on someone and it's 200 milligrams per deciliter. Well, that could mean something very different in one patient versus another patient. And you actually got a number. You quantified that what you're looking for is there and it's still hard. Imagine if you got an ethanol concentration and the answer was, yep. Like, you're like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, you gave me a binary? <laughs> you gave me, yeah, what's the acetaminophen content? Uh-huh. <laughs> totally useless. Like, how do I use that? So we even take it one step further and you look at all these tests and it says, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Amphetamines. And then we, uh, we, we all of a sudden assign the entire patient's presentation to that. And what if, you know, gosh, since we should all be having these conversations, what if that patient is a part of an underrepresented population or, or an overrepresented population when people think about drug use? And you assume you've, you've just confirmed your bias about the patient based on an immunoassay. Then that's a big deal. Oh, what about the situation where I have a clinical scenario that looks like benzodiazepine, but I don't have a lot of corollary information. I don't have a lot to back me up. Urine drug screen helpful there? I mean, it, it's cool, but I mean, that, that's great. But you, you know, you are the drug screen. Your training, your experience, you tell me that, all right, this patient has altered mental status. They basically have kind of like a non-specific toxidrome type exam in terms of like they have normal vitals and they're asleep no signs of trauma. And I don't think they have an infection. Maybe we scan the head, maybe we tapped them, whatever. But it, it, you know, depending on what your, your pretest probability was, but normal vital signs, but asleep and labs look good. EKG looks great. Sounds like a set of hypnotic. Could it be a barb? Yeah, sure. Could it be ethanol? Yeah, sure. Could it be a benzo? Yeah, sure. But I don't see how, you know, necessarily like, oh yeah, wow. It's, it's positive on the UDS. I cracked the case. No, I guess, I guess that's part of the issue, right? Because it's, do we need that confirmatory test to tell us? It's, it's kind of like when we see a patient who's got 
right-sided flank pain radiating to the groin. They got blood in their urine. Do I need a CT scan to say that that's a stone when I'm pretty sure it's a stone? So if the patient has a toxidrome that I can see and I've got a high pretest probability, do I need that confirmation? Or again, could that confirmation lead me in the wrong direction? Because you can have a benzo on board and also have a head bleed or have a benzo on board and also have meningitis. The two things don't have to be mutually exclusive. And I think that's a big part of the problem. And you went into the fact that there are false positives and false negatives. So you can't even necessarily rely on the information that you're getting. And one of the other things that I often hear with the urine drug screen is how little it actually tests for. So I, I have people come in all the time, either the patient comes in or the consulting service says, can you just get a urine drug screen and see what's in their system? And I'm like, but I'm only testing for a couple of things. So how limiting is the group of things that we actually test for? Yeah. And it will vary from place to place. And some places have fancy, you know, opioid screens and some places have very limited ones. And so there's another layer of complexity too. What's the threshold that each institution sets for a positive? That could vary. So, it, you know, it's funny that you bring up the, you know, nephrolithiasis kind of thing, like the slam dunk renal colic or something, um, because I have like really smart partners that I practice with. And sometimes like they, they just, they know all the literature, they know all the data, they can do all this math. They're telling me why I don't need to get a CAT scan for the exact situation you said, or, or who needs a tap and who doesn't for this and that. And then those same people will be like, we got to get a urine drug screen. And it's really funny, you know, because it's just, if it's part of the practice at your shop or part of your personal practice, I don't know that I could convince you that it doesn't matter for patient care. If it's not part of your practice, you will be confirmed by almost everything you read. But sometimes I, I joke with my partners. I'm like, God, the attachment to this is almost religious in nature because you just want to believe it so bad. We've talked a little bit about why we order them, why we shouldn't order them. But what about when the consultants are asking us to order them? Because we do get requested quite often to get these, whether it be for psych patients or like you said, going to the ICU or even going to the floors. What's kind of your response? How do you deal with that disconnect? Because I think that's part of the issue. We sometimes just don't want to have the conversation. So how do you have that conversation? I try to attack the conversation. Like, look, this is not going to help in any part of inpatient care. It's just not. And it, it depends. If, if there is a level of resistance, I'll be like, okay, well, what are you looking for? Or whatever. Like, oh, what medications do you see on their list that could pose a problem for false positives or false negatives? And so, you know, that's the nice thing about talks is that when I'm consulting, I don't have 16 patients at one time and I can spend the time, you know, sparring with someone. But sometimes they're just going to dig in and want it. And then I'll do a post-test analysis. We'll get it. There'll be some expected, oh, they're on diphenhydramine. All right, here comes the false TCA result. Everyone's going to lose their mind with this one. And when it's positive, I call them back and I'll be like, okay, hey, do you see that? Like, how did that, you know, and just try to do a little like collegial teaching or, you know, kind of discussion about it and not be a jerk about it because that doesn't make toxicology any friends. And I guess this is part of it. You need to know kind of what those cross reactivities are. So you brought up diphenhydramine and TCAs. I'm not sure that everybody knows that that's one of those things that's going to light up, but you can kind of see how that might alter the trajectory of the patient, but not in a good way, not altering yeah. them in a management way that's actually going to make that patient better. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what, what if the patient was I mean, there's a million scenarios where you give the wrong treatment for the wrong thing and there's a problem. Most of the time, you know, people already got the correct drug screen for TCA, which is called a, a history of physical and an EKG. But that's the real screen for TCAs. So when people act on a urine 
drug screen in the wrong way, it really can negatively affect patient care or, or just their experience. We were just consulted maybe a year or so ago on a woman who just gave birth and in um, postpartum, they took the baby and said, you can't breastfeed and we have to do CPS and all this stuff because her urine tox was positive for amphetamines. Well, she was given a ranitidine the night before for her GERD, and that was what caused the urine drug screen to be false positive for amphetamines. And I mean, someone took a baby away from this lady after she just had her, her kid, like those first couple hours, and they had to go through this whole rigmarole because of a urine drug screen that didn't match up. One of your questions was about what about outpatient services or who might need it? There is some addiction medicine kind of trends that, that say that they want this data for dual diagnosis or whatever. As far as risk stratifying psych patients or for medical clearance, it is not useful. Medical clearance is the same thing as, as what we do in, in a screening or resuscitation in the ER. And it's not helpful. For dual diagnosis, for therapy and stuff like that later, there is a trend to want that. There's also several citations that suggest that outpatient doctors ignore them or you know use them in a, in a different way without confirmation. So to sum up, the urine drug screen was never created for use in a clinical setting. It was you know, basically NIDA and Department of Transportation to screen for people driving big trucks who might be exposed to, to drugs. It was never meant for medical use, but we inappropriately use it that way and very rarely followed up with confirmation. Summary. The big things, Jeff, that I see here is doing that good history and physical exam to see if the patient has a toxidrome that matches or more importantly, doing that history and physical, but without the urine drug screen to see whether one of those things is at play. So you don't necessarily need the urine drug screen to do that. But if you get a urine drug screen or somebody got a urine drug screen, it's not enough just to say, oh, cocaine is positive. So the presentation must be due to cocaine. You got to go back to the bedside and see what's the physical exam here. And hopefully in most cases, you can get the history from the patient that they use something that might be affecting what you're seeing in front of you. The biggest problem I see with urine drug screens though, is this early diagnostic closure and pushing us towards a diagnosis that really has nothing to do with what the patient is presenting with right now. And so we have to really go to the bedside, do a good history and physical, see what kind of vital signs, et cetera, the patient's presenting with and whether it matches with a toxidrome instead of relying on a urine drug screen to tell us that there's something in their system or not in their system that might be causing that presentation. Ladies and gentlemen, please, you are the drug screen. I am the drug screen. You are talented. I am talented. You are smart. I am smart. You don't need a dumb test to figure this out. I don't need a dumb test to figure this out. You have everything you need. I have everything I need. Please, I beg you. You're begging us. All right, and with that plea, we're going to have to wrap up for the day, Jeff, but I can't wait to have you back on to tackle more of these. Let's find another test that you absolutely hate, and let's see if we can have you tear it apart. All right, Jeff, we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. I believe in myself. I am worth it. Not a useless test with binary results. I don't need it. I can trust my gestalt and my own clinical skills. I'm a doctor. I'm worth it. I've gotten the point. The, the point. 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 point! Pediatric Pearls. Complex Congenital Heart Disease, Part 2. Welcome back to part two of the exciting congenital heart defect surgery piece with Eileen Claudius and Ashley Strobel. We left off during the interstage period between stage one, the Norwood procedure, and stage two, which comes next. We keep referring to these children as being in the interstage period. 
that seems to imply there are more stages. Could you talk to us about the additional two stages that these children go through? Absolutely. Stage two. So the second stage is the bidirectional glen, which is a partial cavopulmonary anastomosis. It happens around four to six months. It's exciting because it's the first time that we can unload that single ventricle and allow part of the blood flow to go passively to the lungs rather than having the single ventricle do all the work. So in this situation, you're taking the superior vena cava and attaching it onto the pulmonary artery. And at that point, they also remove the BT shunt. Okay, so you have all the blood from your superior vena cava going to your pulmonary artery, your inferior vena cava. I don't even know where that's going, but that's not involved at this point. Yeah, that's not involved at this point yet. That's still connected to the right atrium. Okay, so what do we expect of these kids? So these kids, their SATs tend to be a little bit higher. Previously, we had kids with a SAT of 75 to 85%. These kids may even be up in the 90s. Typically, the low 90s, they're not going to be oftentimes at 100%, but you'll start to see more normal saturation. Any specific complications with this procedure? Or is this just kind of a holding period with some of the same complications that we noted previously? This is a holding period. It is associated with far fewer complications. You're still going to have all the regular kid complications. And then, you know, they've had surgery on their heart. So there's been scar tissue. But hemodynamic status is so much less tenuous. And typically by this point, a lot more routine childhood vaccinations have been had. They're a little bit bigger. And what comes next? Stage three. The third stage is the Fontan. This happens typically around 18 to 36 months. This is when you fully transition over. With the Fontan, the IVC is then connected to the pulmonary artery. So you have your SVC and your IVC to the pulmonary artery with this space, essentially, that acts almost like a right atrium. And sometimes they are fenestrated to kind of limit pulmonary blood flow so that we don't overload the pulmonary vasculature and cause pulmonary edema. Okay, so you have your SVC and your IVC, and they are emptying into, well, it's called a lateral tunnel, so I guess a little tunnel per se that then empties into the pulmonary artery. And this may or may not have a pop-off valve in case the pressure becomes too high, so you don't end up with elevated pulmonary pressures, and that's called a fenestration. That is perfectly said. Wow, check me out. And I'm assuming at this point, these kids are relatively stable, but my guess is that their heart is so modified that they're at risk for different arrhythmias. That's exactly right. When we get to this point with the Fontan and you have kind of that almost like stretching associated with the Fontan and different surgeries and modifications and patching that's been done, you're definitely at risk for arrhythmias. And so that's probably the more common complication that we see in this Fontan period. Another common complication is thrombosis. Typically, these kids are actually on an antiplatelet agent, just something as simple as aspirin. And so I usually will ask if they've been taking their aspirin or if they're on anything other than aspirin for their anticoagulation as well. That's actually good to know because my understanding is that the Fontan typically occurs at age two, which also seems to be the time that almost every head trauma occurs. So knowing that these kids might be on an anticoagulant or an antiplatelet agent and knowing to ask seems very important when someone comes in with the normal traumas of toddlerhood. 
That's exactly right. 18 to 36 months, falls happen, bleeding happens. And so knowing what agent they might be on is really important to help guide your workup. And frankly, there's a lack of research in this area. The PCARN group has done an excellent job with providing us clinical decision rules in pediatrics for trauma. However, this small subsect is just that. It's small. And so I defer to the adult literature for folks who are on anticoagulation who hit their head and assume that they're going to be higher risk for any sort of intracranial hemorrhage. And in terms of arrhythmias, what are the two or three most common arrhythmias that we would see in this group of patients? And what is our go-to treatment going to be? ASDs and Fontans are going to be the two surgeries to have a high arrhythmia burden. The Fontan, typically we're going to see atrial tachydysrhythmias. Less commonly will we see a heart block just because there's not a lot of surgery that involves the septum. So in your Fontan, you're going to have atrial flutter, atrial fibrillation, and different variants of SVT. And is the treatment the same as I would use for SVT treatment in a patient who does not have this condition or these surgeries? Would I go to adenosine? Would I go to electricity if the patient's unstable and fails a dose of adenosine? That's exactly right. I use basically the same approach. First, I'm going to get an ultrasound along with my EKG. The ultrasound is going to help me with function along with the blood pressure and the cap refill time. When we talk about meds, your first-line agent for an SVT is going to be adenosine, same as it would be for any other patient who comes in with SVT. If the patient is refractory, then choosing something like procainamide may be helpful. Or if they're having atrial flutter or atrial fibrillation, procainamide would be a great starting point also. If they're unstable, the next choice is going to be what we would do for any unstable arrhythmia, and that's going to be electrical cardioversion. Something I've noticed about these patients is they tend to tolerate things like SVT and atrial fibrillation a little bit worse than their counterparts who do not have congenital heart disease or surgical corrections. Normally, a neonate can be in SVT for 24 hours before anyone even notices or they start to have complications. And yet I've had a few of these kids really decompensate fairly quickly in these arrhythmias that would not necessarily be that life-threatening to other children. That's exactly right. They are dependent upon the one ventricle and they're dependent upon that passive preload. Once we start losing that preload with an SVT, they can decompensate quickly. And obviously, we're seeing more and more adults who are surviving into adulthood who have undergone these surgeries or whatever the last generation of these surgeries was as children. I'm assuming they are also susceptible to these arrhythmias and that they would be treated the same way. That's exactly right. And we actually have adults that come into our children's hospital because they are congenital heart patient. And oftentimes they'll walk into the recess room, set their things down. They know when they started into their atrial fibrillation. They know what to expect next. We get medications and electricity ready and do the same exact approach for them. And it's the same approach that you would do for any other adult who has atrial fibrillation, flutter, SVT. One last question, and then I will let you go, which is, if you have one of these kids, or presumably an adult, who starts coding, what are the important steps that we need to remember to take? Well, in the era of COVID, of course, we're going to say to get your PPE on. 
But the approach is mostly the same. CBC, VBG, VMP, and LFTs for all these kids that the gold crit was greater than 45%. And so you knew their metabolic acidosis status. You are going to do CPR. You're going to try to intubate or at least place a supraglottic airway in the interim, depending on what your resources are. Just know that, especially for kids in the interstage with that tenuous hemodynamics, CPR increases that intrathoracic pressure. Mechanical ventilation increases that intrathoracic pressure. Both of those are going to reduce the pulmonary blood flow that's so preload dependent. And so we're going to need to give fluid boluses, but just keeping that extra caveat in mind that they need to overcome that preload-dependent pulmonary blood flow and that CPR and mechanical ventilation work against that. So as much as we can, we can maybe minimize PEEP. But, you know, at this point, it's all heroic measures and we have to do what we have to do. So it's the same basic steps that we would take for any other kid or any other adult. Great. That's good to know. Thank you so much. I think that sometimes our fear of the unknown, which many of these kids have a list of surgeries that aren't just immediately recognizable to us, can paralyze us from doing what we know how to do best. And that's really good information that we do have permission to resuscitate these children as we normally would, with the few caveats that they are susceptible to upper respiratory tract infections, that we have a different oxygen saturation goal, that they are much more dependent on having the right amount of fluids on board than other kids that we take care of. That's exactly right. Same, but just very few caveats. Totally different, but still the same. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Summary. So in part two, we picked up with the second stage of this three-stage surgery. In stage two, is called the bidirectional glen. This is a partial caval pulmonary anastomosis. It's the first time that the single ventricle is unloaded and part of the blood flow is allowed to go passively to the lungs. They take the SVC and they finally attach it to the pulmonary artery and they remove the BT or SANO shunt at this point. The O2 sat rises to the low 90s and now we are at a stage associated with fewer complications and is kind of a holding period. Their hemodynamic status is much less tenuous. The third stage is done at around 18 to 36 months and is called the Fontan procedure. At this point, the SVC and the IVC are both connected to the pulmonary artery, and now they have a small space in between that almost acts like a right atrium. Now the patients are relatively stable. They are at risk, however, for arrhythmias because of all the structural changes that have been made. Most commonly, you would see atrial tachydysrhythmias, atrial flutter, AFib, SVT. And remember that treatment and resuscitation of these patients is the same as you would do in any other child. Adenosine would be first line, moving on to your antiarrhythmics after that. Another complication here still is thrombosis. So most of these children will be on either an anticoagulant, aspirin, or an antiplatelet agent. So figure that into your calculations. Adults who have survived these surgeries are also at higher risk for arrhythmias. And again, they should be treated per standard protocol. Thanks again to Eileen and Ashley for such an informative piece. What a great review. Hey, let's go over the October EMA. It was big, it was huge, it was large. There was some really great stuff before we begin. Can I do some advertising? Too bad I'm going to do it anyway. 
The One Conference coming up in April. You should join us there. Check it out on the website. It will be both in person if you want to come and hang with us and have beers and do some really fun stuff, or you can watch the stream if you're an MRAP subscriber. Abstract One. Okay, Abstract One was a really important paper from the PCAR network, and it's about head trauma in little tiny kids. You know there's the PCAR rule for head trauma in kids, and it divides it up into age two and less and two and more. But what about the little tiny babies? What about the kids less than three months? Not yes, three months. Little tiny kids that just sort of lay there and don't do much. Does pecan work in that group? And this is a little bit terrifying. So if you use the pecan rule, and there's a calculator on Corpendium, you can check it out. You know, they basically they look good, according to the parents, and they don't have a big skull hematoma and that kind of stuff. There's a number of things that you need to look at. But if you are low risk by that pecan, in the less than three months, your chance of having you know, something really bad, like death or needing to have surgery, was pretty low. But it wasn't zero. There was a 0.2% chance of some badness. Shouldn't understate that, like bad outcome, death, bad outcome kind of stuff. But there was about a 5% chance that there'd be something pretty nasty on the head CT. And this is the problem with these little tiny kids. For whatever reason, they can have trauma. They can you know, fall, uh, roll off the couch and smack their head or whatever it is. And they can look really good and have really nothing on exam, and yet about 1 in 20 is going to have something on their head CT? Now that's concerning, so what do you do? Because an argument can be made for being pretty liberal and scanning these kids with a history of trauma, but at the same time, this is the worst time to scan these kids because they've got growing brains, and you know that it's really, really rare that they're going to have something terrible bad that's going to require surgery or death, but it's not zero. I mean, these CT findings are not even close to zero, so... I will let the smart pediatricians and others have a discussion about that. Just tell me which way to get it wrong. Should I CT too many people or should I miss some injuries? Which way do you want me to get it wrong? Abstract two. They did a big, large, huge paper, number two, which is normothermia versus hypothermia for cardiac arrest, New England Journal of Medicine. I've been following this myself over the years. I was actually on EMA reviewing the original trials nearly 20 years ago. And I said at the time when the Australian trial came out and the New England Journal paper came out, that if true, this hypothermia for cardiac arrest, cool these people down and they have much better neurological outcomes, is profound. But it's not clear that it is true because these studies were pretty small. Well, this is the biggest study ever done, and it's basically twice the size of everything else put together. And it definitively shows that hypothermia doesn't work. This is 33 versus normothermia. Didn't work in any subgroup, whether you had a shockable or non-shockable rhythm. Just didn't work. And this goes with the more recent studies that have been showing the same thing. So basically where we're at after 20 years of these trials is hypothermia as a routine. Don't do it. Don't need to do it. Fever is bad. So treat fever. We know that if you have a cardiac arrest and then you develop fever, that's bad. So treat those people. But routine hypothermia in patients post cardiac arrest doesn't work. And it's taken us 20 years to get to the point where we can say that definitively. And we know this is a recurrent theme in medicine. There is lots and lots of examples of this, where the initial studies are a little small, but they look really positive. And so you should use a therapy while it's working, because if you keep doing bigger studies and better studies, you find that in a lot of cases, what we once believed isn't true. There's also probably file draw bias. There's people who've been doing the studies and it wasn't positive. It doesn't get published. There's lots of reasons for this. But it is a little disturbing. You probably didn't hurt anybody by giving them hypothermia, 
but it sure doesn't look like you help many. Abstract 4. Abstract 4 is a very interesting paper that is from JAMA, and it's the effect of rapid respiratory virus testing on antibiotic prescribing amongst children presenting to the immune department with acute respiratory illness, a randomized trial. So in the preamble, they say that about 50% of kids with respiratory symptoms end up getting antibiotics. That's insane. But this asks the question, if you give uh, the docs and the patients the results of some viral testing, but it's also viruses and some bacteria, can you reduce that number? So here's what happened. In the control group where they didn't get the information, they were only given antibiotics to these kids about 19% of the time. So that's good. That's better than 50%. You could argue it should be about 2%, like Mike says. But when they actually gave them the results of this panel, which had lots of viruses and a couple of bacteria in there, prescribing actually went up a little bit. What? Mike thinks it's because there was a lot of negatives, as in, we can't find any bacteria, we can't find any viruses, and maybe the providers freaked out a bit and said, oh, I should give you antibiotics because we don't know what's going on here. But we don't know. You would think that these things overall would reduce antibiotic prescribing, but I think they'll only reduce antibiotic prescribing if your group, your peeps, are already prescribing to a lot of kids. So if you really did have 50% of people who have a little bit of uh, the snuffy noses and the colds and stuff getting antibiotics, then providing them with this respiratory panel probably would reduce it. But if they're already very low, there's no slam dunk that it's going to reduce it more. And in this study, they didn't show that. Maybe it made them prescribe more. Fascinating. Abstract 7. Abstract 7 was about back pain. It was about which non-steroidal works the best. Ibuprofen, Kirolac, or Diclofenac. And it turns out not a big difference between the two. Maybe the ibuprofen was the least well-tolerated. But basically, you've got options. I guess if one doesn't work, you can try the other. Abstract 9. Abstract 9 was a paper about these new devices from The Lancet uh, comparing real-time versus intermittently scanned continuous glucose monitoring in adults with type 1 diabetes, the alert one trial. But I bring this up for the same reason that Sanjay brought up, which is that there's been an explosion in these devices which check your glucose either continuously or intermittently when you ask it to. And it's basically a little device that has a little needle on it and you slap it on to yourself and the needle goes subcutaneously and then you tape it down and then with a smartphone you can then scan it and say, what's my glucose? So this idea of checking your finger stick glucose multiple times a day is really going away very fast and there's evidence that these actually improve uh, diabetic control in both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. I have a family member with one and it's a revelation to me. He just waves his smartphone over the thing to find out what his glucose is and then acts appropriately. So you should know about these you should be asking your patients about them. And if you see one of these puppies, they can pull it up on their iPhone or their smartphone for you and give you trends over time, over hours, days, even weeks, depending on how long they've had it. And that may be useful in sort of deciding outpatient therapy if they've been getting a little hypo or whatever it is. But these devices are going to be, I think, ubiquitous. Patients love them. They're pretty accurate and they may be associated with better outcomes. And if that's true, as some recent evidence suggests, then the primary care people are going to be um, prescribing these for everyone. Abstract 11. Abstract 11 is something that I'm really interested in, and it's called the efficacy and safety of non-antibiotic outpatient treatment in mild acute diverticulitis, the Dynamo study, a multi-center randomized, open label, non-inferiority trial, annals of surgery. We talked about this when we did an author interview, because in the Corpendium chapter, it says you don't really have to give antibiotics for mild diverticulitis. And that was a sort of a revelation to me. Of course you have to. We've always done that. What are you talking about, crazy author? Well, it turns out, that there's a number of studies now that say you don't need to do that. A number of societies say that you don't need to do this. This is one of the best studies to date where they actually sent people home that had mild diverticulitis and said, you don't need anything, and let's see how that compares to giving people antibiotics. 
Now, these were low-risk people. They didn't have a big phlegmon perforation. They didn't have, you know, big white counts or anything. These were pretty low-risk people, but they did fine. And so we're going to see more and more studies like this. And as Sanjay points out, this hasn't really made it to the bedside yet. There's a lot of surgeons that you talk to that are not happy about this, a lot of GI people, but the societies are on board and increasingly the literature is on board. But if you're going to do this, make sure it's a low-risk patient because that's who these studies are on. I mean, they're pretty low risk. They don't have much of a white count. They don't have much of anything going on. And they do have somebody in the house who has a car that can bring them back if they get worse. But that's amazing to me. Diverticulitis. Non-antimicrobial therapy. Wow. You just, everything changes constantly. It's cool. Abstract 12. They did a paper I'm particularly interested in, or at least a topic I'm particularly interested in, and it's clinical impact of high sensitivity cardiac troponin implementation in the community. So here's the idea. You got a troponin, and then you develop a really highly sensitive troponin. So they looked before and after they implemented the highly sensitive troponin to ask the question, do you send more people home if it's negative? Do you admit more people? Do you cath more people? Do you pick up more MIs? And what does this do to the sort of the overall milieu of the emergency department? So in quick summary, they found that they could, you know, pick a couple more MIs than they otherwise would. They did a few more caths, but overall the number of discharges didn't really change a lot even though the number of positives was basically double. So as Mike has noted, this didn't really have much of a positive or a negative effect overall. It had some positive effects maybe, had some negative effects, but you ended up sending home, on average, about the same number of people in about the same number of times. So what to make of it? I don't know, more studies to come. But it didn't destroy the planet, as some people, like me, thought it could. All of these people are going to be positive, and all of these people are going to hang around, and all of these people are going to have to get further workups. In this little study, at least, that didn't happen, and that makes us all feel just a bit better. But there'll be more to come on this. And of course, I've run out of time, because I'm only allowed 10 minutes, because the people that run this show don't give me more than 10 minutes. I could tell you about a whole bunch of other papers, really clinically useful papers, but am I allowed to? No, I'm not. Now listen, to serve us, you must obey us. Because this is sort of an anti-Australian establishment. Crikey! My name's Mel Herbert, I'll talk to you next month. It's the Ultra Ultra Summary. It's not just a summary. It's an ultra-ultra summary. You take a summary, you summarize it, you get an ultra-ultra summary. It's a thing. We made it up here. It is a thing. Rub it out. Serve us, you must obey us. I could tell you about a whole bunch of other papers, really clinically useful papers, but am I allowed to? Serve us. No, I'm not. You must obey us. It is a it is a thing. It's not just a summary. 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 Jan, it is time for the mailbag, and I've got a big bag of letters from the home office in Horton Bay, Michigan. In the cold northern regions of the state of Michigan, there's a little town called Horton Bay. It's right on a lake, so there's probably good fishing in the tiny little town of Horton Bay. The tiny little town of Horton Bay. I got Horton Bay. Hey, he got away. Yeah, this month we got a letter about blood transfusions, and you had a chance to sit down with Tom DeLore to get some great answers. We all learned early on in medical school about the major blood antigens. A blood has A antigens and anti-B antibodies. B blood has B antigens and anti-A antibodies. A B blood has A and B antigens and no antibodies. And O type blood has no antigens 
and anti-A and anti-B antibodies. I'm doing that review for me, not for you, because I did have to go back through this a little bit. And we know that we don't give type A blood to people with type B blood because they can get transfusion reactions, of course, vice versa as well. What we learned less about is the minor blood groups, things like big C and little c and big E, little e, the Kel, the Duffy. Honestly, a lot of these terminology, I've heard them, but I don't know much about them. And I think that we see this with the rest of our field as well, because we got a great email from Dr. Christian Patterson just a little while ago. And he said that he had a patient with a retroperitoneal bleed who was hypotensive, clearly needed RBC transfusion. He called for O negative, but the blood bank called back and said that the patient had minor group big C, so they had to get fully cross-matched blood, which took a little longer. And he goes on, and I quote, the experience showed me how little I know about transfusion reactions and in particular, these minor antibodies. In a situation even more dire, would it be the right thing to give that O blood anyway, even though it's not fully cross-matched? Is there a way to minimize the likelihood of a reaction? Can you pre-medicate and then give the blood? I'm not sure what the right answer is, obviously, because I had to review type A and type B blood, but we do have our resident hematologist, Dr. Tom Delory on, and Tom, it's great to have you back, and I know that you have answers to all these questions. Great. When your review is excellent, it just summarized an hour lecture in one minute on ABO. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom, the problem is that that's the simple part of things. That's the <laughs> easy part. That's pretty basic. But let's get into these minor groups a little bit. Does everybody have these minor groups or, or do they not have them? How common are they? Yes. So there's a variety of minor groups. ABO is the most important because we all naturally will make antibodies due to bacterial infections, other things to uh, ABO blood groups. But there, we, our red cells actually have probably hundreds of proteins that do differ. And so there's actually many minor blood groups. The biggest ones are RH, which actually is not only D, which is classic RH, but C and E. But as you mentioned, a variety of other minor things, Kid, Duffy, Kell. And their incidence varies in the population. We know that about 85 to 90% of people are RH positive. Kel is very unusual to have, 1% to 2% positive for Kel. And then we see people with uh, Duffy can differ. So yes, we all have these. And, and many of these actually can pose challenges when people get antibodies in the blood bank. Let's get Christian's question out of the way first. If I have a trauma patient, a GI bleeder, they're hypotensive, I call for O blood. Do I need to be worried about these minor groups? Because in general, we're not checking for them. We're just giving them O negative or if it's a male patient or an older woman, we're giving them O positive. That's correct. Now, the incidence of just uh, transfusing emergent blood and running into one of these rare antibody reactions is very, very rare. So a study I recall from years ago, it's literally like one in a thousand. So no, you can transfuse emergency O pretty much risk-free. All right. I think that's good to know. And that really does answer Christian's question. If you have a trauma patient, you have a GI bleeder, the patient is hypotensive due to bleeding, you need blood go ahead and give O blood. That's fine. We're not going to change that recommendation because we need the blood right away. Right. And the risk of those reactions is very low. Now, a delayed transfusion reaction, Tom, is going to be delayed. What should we expect to see if that occurs? So the delayed transfusion reactions, really anything, again, this, this sounds obvious, that, that isn't acute, but that can vary. So rarely, and I've seen it once in my life, it can be a pretty severe reaction several hours out with fevers, breakdown of the transfused red cells, uh, hemoglobinuria. More likely what you see is the next day or two, very mild hemolysis, maybe the bilirubin bumps, the LDH goes up, 
the imatocrit falls a little bit. And they're usually pretty minor reactions. And again, it's after the heat of battle, so you can deal with it. A lot of times, it's something what we call serologic delayed transfusion reaction. That is, you actually don't see anything in the CBC changes, but maybe the Coombs test direct antibody test is positive. And sometimes actually nothing happens at all, which curiously may be more common in the trauma situation due to the immune suppression of trauma. So really, the average delayed reactions a day or two after, some signs of hemolysis, some decrement in the uh, CBC, but not really a spectacular event. So not only are these rare, you said about one in a thousand, but on top of that, the delayed transfusion reactions that you might see are pretty minor. And obviously, we're still going to be looking for that acute transfusion reaction. But again, pretty rare. The delayed reaction is going to be pretty rare as well. So we're getting kind of layers of safety in doing this. And what you're telling me is not necessarily that I don't need to know about these minor groups, but in the heat of battle, in the really emergency transfusion situation, I don't need to worry too much about them. That is correct. And one thing with these minor antibodies, even when they're around, they're pretty low titer, and then you get this aministic response. So, you know, really, if somebody's not been transfused in the last month or so, it's really almost going to be nothing to worry about. And again, even that situation, if somebody's dying in front of your eyes, it's more important to give them red cells than worry about this blood bank phenomenon. This is going to differ from blood bank to blood bank, but in general, if I give a patient O blood for an emergency bleeding situation, but they happen to have one of these minor groups, is the blood bank going to notify me later on and say, hey, you know, we know we gave you O blood for that patient, but by the way, there is an incompatibility, just a heads up to keep an eye out for some reactions that might come up. So our blood bank, and I think most blood bank will retrospectively cross-match the products just for this very reason. So you should be notified if there is, will, is incompatibility or issues. You said that these reactions are pretty rare, but are there steps that we should take in preventing this from happening if we know it's there? So often we'll have patients that have already been typed and screened or even cross-matched at our hospital in the past. That might be why in Christian's case, the blood bank gave him a call and said, hey, by the way, we got this, this incompatibility you got to know about. Is there something that we can do if we know about this? Or, or maybe if it's a less emergency situation, is there something that we can do in terms of pre-medication to make it less likely that the patient has a reaction? No, it's frustrating. These pre-meds, uh, things like that, don't seem to help. So, you know, obviously, you know, try to avoid transfusion. I mean, the obvious, try to avoid transfusion, wait for other <laughs> products. But, you know, again, I think one issue, though, if you get, again, literally, if somebody's exsanguinating in front of your eyes, it's just more important to give them red cells. I mean, even if they have an acute hemolytic reaction, since you know about it, you can treat through that by giving fluids get, and pushing through it. But, uh, no, you know, once it's there, you know, globally, you know, ideally in a perfect role, we prevent this by doing perfect cross-matching, crossing ABO and all the minor antigens to prevent things. And that's too resource intensive. We do do it for certain populations who are going to be transfusion dependent. So patients who suffer from sickle cell anemia, we do what we call extended phenotyping. Maybe somebody with thalassemia is going to be dependent to avoid these issues down the road. But, but for most patients, uh, we don't do that. And, and the other unknown is, why only some people do this? For example, 15% of people are big C negative, actually up to 80% of African Americans, but only a few percent actually develop these alloantibodies. So that's, that's another mystery of blood banking, why only some people get these incompatibilities. I think the bottom line here is that if you have an exsanguinating patient from whatever cause, trauma, GI bleed, whatever's going on, 
you can go ahead and give the O blood, again, either O negative if it's a woman of childbearing age, O positive if it's a man or if it's an older woman. You can give that and be safe because it's a very rare to have a significant reaction. You said about one in a thousand. Yes. If the patient's exsanguinating in front of you, they need the blood, and that's really the priority. I think that's the big take-home point for us to look at here. But then also for us to understand that this could happen, it could be a little bit delayed. And just to have a heads up that this could be coming, hopefully our blood bank will give us a heads up and let us know about that. And then for those patients who have less emergency need for that blood, it is important if they are getting frequent transfusions to make sure that this is done because we don't want them to have reactions. And, and again, depends on your population, but it might be patients who have dysfunctional uterine bleeding who come in for frequent transfusions. In my population, it is sickle cell anemia that we see quite frequently. And those patients need a little bit more work done. Your blood bank's on top of this. And again, if you're worried about it, call your blood bank, talk to them and find out exactly what they're doing, because I find that you're exactly right. Very few people call the blood bank to ask them questions about what they're doing, but they actually are, are really, obviously very knowledgeable of what they do. And they're very happy to share that information. All right, Tom, thanks so much for clearing this up. Christian, we hope that we got you the answer to your question. If you have any other questions on these blood type groups, send them over and we will get them to Tom. Great. Well, thank you very much for allowing me to rant and rave about transfusion medicine. So that's it this month for the mailbag. Don't forget, you guys, to keep those letters coming. I'm just the postman. Mega, 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 monster. Like that? <laughs> All right, everyone, we're on the other side of the program. All of the great segments are done, and now it is time for Jan and I to roll through all of these segments with a quick wrap-up for the Mega Summary. Rural Medicine Talks. All right, so this month for the Rural Medicine piece, Vanessa Cardi got a chance to sit down and talk to Adrian Salim about a case of acute kidney injury. This was an interesting case of a patient who walks into a rural, remote emergency department in new renal failure. And this patient is tachypnic and clinically appears to be fluid overloaded. And the doctor determines that she needs urgent dialysis, but they're about six hours, of course, from a place that can get that done. So this was a great opportunity for us to review what the indications are for emergency dialysis. And if you haven't reviewed this in a while, it is so clinically relevant to think about these things and remind yourself what is and what is not on the list. A good mnemonic to remember this is the old A-E-I-O-U. A-E-I-O-U. And the A is for acidemia. So if your pH is below 7.1, Again, despite medical management that you've tried to do something to fix it, and this one's a little bit more difficult to fix, which we'll talk about in a minute, but despite medical management, then your E is for electrolytes. So usually it's hyperkalemia, despite, again, medical management. I is for ingestions, those rare cases of lithium or the toxic alcohols where you may need dialysis to save this person's life. O is for overload. So someone who looks like they're in CHF, again, despite some attempt at medical management, and U is for uremia. That's the pericarditis, the person who's really bleeding, or encephalopathy, which is a common reason to fall into this category. So they review the pearls on medical management while you're awaiting dialysis. You're in one of those scenarios where you don't have access to emergent dialysis. What are the things you should be doing? So for hyperkalemia, I think this is the one we're most familiar with. Obviously, we're going to give calcium, ideally calcium gluconate, if we have EKG abnormalities or concern about those. We've got the glucose-insulin combination. And then we've got our beta agonists, and especially the long-acting ones, things like salbutamol might be where you go when you have a delay to getting to dialysis. Now, remember, these are shifters and they're temporizing. And over hours, that potassium can increase again. So when you're in that wash, rinse, repeat cycle of waiting for dialysis, 
You have to think about rechecking the potassium and making sure it doesn't creep back up there, repeating EKGs to see how the potassium is doing. So you may want to go for those long-acting beta agonists while you're transporting and monitoring EKG, you know, especially looking at that QRS to make sure it's not widening. And you can repeat those above therapies to shift if you need to. Now, in terms of volume status, if your patient makes urine or at least a little bit of urine, you can try doses of IV furosemide. These may not have a big effect, especially if your patient really doesn't have kidneys that can respond to it. So varying ability to make a difference there. Now, if someone's got pulmonary edema, you want to follow your standard protocol. That might be a nitroglycerin drip, et cetera. We have a great chapter in Corpendium that reviews it, but it really depends on your blood pressure. You know, some of these agents that are going to do that volume adjusting really depend on a high blood pressure. So you have to take a look at that. One really important life-saving trick here is phlebotomy. When you're in a low resource setting, this is an easy way to get volume off a patient and can really be life-saving. You remove about 400 to 600 mLs of blood. You can do it via a pretty big gauge needle. Just drain it to gravity. That's really what you're doing. You're just doing blood sucking. Get it off. Get the volume off and it can really help. And if the volume status in this patient is low, you may even have to give small boluses to help them. But remember, the key word here is small. Now for acidosis, yes, you could do a bicarb drip, but this can cause fluid overload because there's a lot of sodium in sodium bicarb, and that may be a problem in and of itself. So this may be a difficult one to solve. And then uremia, especially pericarditis, don't forget that if you do have a big pericardial effusion, you may even have to drain that if needed if you're in a cycle of having to wait. Now, this patient ended up doing well, no significant complications. I think these are great pearls, Swami. What do you think? They are great pearls. And, and I think it's a really hard place to be in where you need dialysis, but it's a long transport to get dialysis. I don't really have that situation. Everywhere I work, I can get dialysis done pretty quickly. But I think that there are ways even for us to facilitate that process, right? If it's three in the morning, nobody really wants to come in to do that dialysis. But if I tell my consult, hey, I already put in an HD catheter because this guy needs dialysis, that tends to move things along a little bit quicker. So that's one of the things that I think is part of our job as the emergency physician to do is to get that catheter in so they can get it done, so that there's not that other barrier in place. The toxins, remember aspirin too, aspirin is one that needs to be dialyzed. If you get to a certain number, talk to your toxicologist, they can help to guide you on that. But dialysis is so critical for this group of patients that getting it done quickly is really the key. So stabilize and then move them out to wherever they have to go to get that dialysis done. Absolutely. In the critical care mailbag this month, Jan, I got to talk to Scott about fluid responsiveness. And, and we have been talking about fluid responsiveness for the better part of a decade. How do we measure it? How do we know how much fluid patients need? And I think that we have really changed the way we've thought about this. I think back in the day with early goal-directed therapy in septic shock, it was give crystalloids. If the patient was still hypotensive, give more fluids, give more fluids, give a little more fluids, and you probably haven't given enough fluids, so give some more fluids. But we are shifting on how we think about this, especially because our understanding of septic shock is different. These patients have leaky vessels, a third space fluid. And so whatever crystalloid you give them doesn't really stay in the intravascular space for very long. So why bother continuing to give it? Let's figure out whether it can actually help before we give it. And so Scott talks about two new fluid paradigms. Number one, being looking for fluid responsiveness, either by checking with your ultrasound, looking at their IVC for variation, doing a passive leg raise, and then seeing how the heart responds to that. Or new fluid paradigm number two, which is Scott's approach, which is give an initial fluid bolus and then stop. You're done. You don't need more fluids after that. Start a vasoactive substance to maintain perfusion, but don't continue to give patients fluids. Now, from there, we talked about a couple of cases to look at kind of how we would do that fluid resuscitation. I think this is a really good segment to 
think about how you should be administering fluids in this group of septic shock patients and understanding that we are really shifting towards early vasopressors and less fluids. This is an area where ultrasound skills are really key. You know, if you're able with your point of care ultrasound to look at that IVC, look at that heart, and look at the lungs for beelines and assess the fluid status can really be helpful. I think it's trickier when you're in a place that you don't have an ultrasound or lack those skills. It is a little bit trickier. I don't have a problem with doing a bolus and stopping and kind of seeing how a patient's doing. The passive leg raise thing is okay too. But I do think we have to think a little bit differently and just pouring fluids in nonstop may not be the best thing. Pediatric pearls. Jen, our next segment's a two-parter and one that I really needed on congenital heart disease. Yeah, this was a bit of a complex piece because, you know, this isn't easy uh, to walk someone through how you repair a complex congenital heart lesion. And so Eileen Claudius and Ashley Strobel walk us through one of the more complex surgeries, one of these staged surgeries that we've all learned about over time, but see very infrequently. But really, if you think about scenarios that scare you, they start with that exact scenario. A kid that walks into your ER or a baby, really, that's carried into your ER with a big midline sternotomy scar, and the parent tells you they've had surgery for a heart defect, and this kid is sick. And what do you do? What do you need to know about those surgeries? So they briefly cover some of the possible surgical procedures it could be, but they spend the majority of their time focusing in on one particular surgery, which has made a huge difference in kids' lives, taking a condition which had an extremely high mortality rate and now changing that to a scenario where 70% of the babies born with this problem now survive. So This is the staged procedure that approaches a kid that has a heart that has one functional ventricle. It may be hypoplastic left heart. There could be other lesions that cause this problem, but this leads to what they refer to as a staged surgery, where they do something basically right after the kid is born, and then a few months later do something else and down the line. So stage one is the one that occurs at birth. It's the one that they call the Norwood procedure. I think we've both, we've all heard those terms before, the BT shunt, the Fontan procedure, all these things. This is what they walk us through. So stage one happens right after they're born, stage two happens at four to six months, and then stage three happens when they're 18 to 36 months uh, of age. The 60-second version of this piece is that the Norwood procedure is the thing that happens first. It happens right after birth. It basically sets up that one functional ventricle that they have to pump blood systemically, and then they create a passive flow of blood back to the pulmonary circulation. Now, kids go home after this procedure because they have to get a little bigger before they can have the next one. And this means they often go home to a community where there's a community ED, the place where most of us work, and this is called the interstage period. And during this period, these babies have about a 10% risk of death because their physiology is very tenuous. It's semi-functional. And any little thing, even a URI, a little gastroenteritis, can tip them over very quickly, and they can go into CHF, they can get hypoxic very quickly. So they get into details about how to manage sick kids at this interstage. And there are two main points I want to drive home. One is to be gentle with fluids. Yes, they're preload dependent, but they can't handle a huge surge in their intravascular volume. Also, their normal O2 sat at this stage is 75 to 80%. And that is what your target should actually be, whatever their baseline O2 sat is, which may feel uncomfortable, but that's about as good as you're going to get because they have this mixed venous situation going on. If they can survive this interstage period, they get the next surgery at four to six months. It's called the bidirectional Glenn procedure. This basically helps stabilize that hemodynamic status. And now their baseline O2 sat rises to the low 90s. And the third surgery happens at 18 to 36 months. It's the Fontan procedure. And basically, this is where they kind of shore up the right side of the circulation. The venous side finally gets set up. The IVC, the SVC are all kind of plugged in 
to do what they usually do. And at this point, these kids are relatively stable from a volume standpoint, but they are at risk for arrhythmias since they've had a lot of structural changes from all these surgeries. With regard to treating those arrhythmias in these special patients, and they're usually atrial arrhythmias, the point here is that you just do what you normally do, cardiovert when you need to, use the drugs you would normally use, including adenosine. They will be effective. And so just do what you normally do. One other little point is that these kids are at risk for thrombosis. They have these little shunts and these little things that are created. And so along the way, they're going to be on aspirin or an antiplatelet or even an anticoagulant. And the thrombosis itself can create complications itself. So ask parents about that in terms of their medication list and keep that in mind as a potential complicating factor. Such a great segment, Jan, because it's exactly what Swadron always says. We need to understand what we need to understand and, and also kind of the next steps. If we understand a little bit about what the cardiothoracic surgeons are doing for these patients, then we can understand a little bit better how to take care of them the right way. And hopefully these scare us a little bit less when they actually do come in. Our next segment was the Dan McCollum piece with Ryan Knight and Charlie Moore talking about trauma under fire and how they managed this very, very difficult situation on the battlefield. And again, this is one of my favorite pieces, just to hear the heroic measures that people go through. Dan goes through the March algorithm, which is a way to manage when you have multiple trauma patients, looking at massive hemorrhage, airway, respiratory status, circulation, and not forgetting about hypothermia. And at the heart of this particular segment is Drs. Knight and Moore recounting an incident where Army Rangers were badly injured in the field and cared for by medics who did an absolutely incredible job while under fire. And I've listened to this piece, Jan, a couple of times, and each time I take a little something different away from it. Not just the heroism of these medics, but also what we can learn from management in the emergency department when we have multiple victims of trauma. Yeah, this was really a great piece. And it really helps you remember when you have multiple victims, how you have to boil it down to really simple things. You're not going to be able to do all the things. So what are the really key things? The tourniquets, right? Just the airway chin lift jaw thrust. Thinking about tension pneumo. You know, what are those things that you can that really make a difference in the moment and just keeping it to the simple stuff? not all the other things. You know, if you can do massive transfusion protocols, great. You have to keep that in mind. Whole blood might be something that you have access to. It was really, it was really a great piece. And I agree, the heroism and really putting yourself in that scenario and thinking about it is kind of mind-blowing. Dr. Amol Matu. Cardiology Corner this month, Jan. I got to talk to Amol about updates in SVT, something that is so basic to us as emergency physicians, but still a little bit more that we can learn. We went through all of the different pieces of this, the narrow complex, regular tachydysrhythmias, the options for that, that it could be SVT, but don't forget about atrial flutter. Don't forget that sometimes it's just sinus tachycardia, and you don't want to be the guy who tries to cardiovert sinus tachycardia. Although, I'll be honest, Jan, I've done it at least once, maybe twice. Me too. Yeah. I think so. So don't, don't feel too bad if it actually happens, but try not to. And we get then into the treatment options for SVT. The unstable patient is going to get electricity. You can try vagal maneuvers in the stable patient, and you can use adenosine. Although I will admit, I really do like calcium channel blockers here better than using adenosine. We had a long segment on that with Justin Morgenstern. You can go check that out. You can use beta blockers as well, although I think rarely are those used. I think it's much more of the calcium channel blockers and adenosine. And then from there, we did discuss a little bit on wide complex regular tachydysrhythmias that we should always think of those as ventricular tachycardia. But there's a possible alternate diagnosis. You can have SVT with a bundle branch block. But in general, think about that as ventricular tachycardia first. And then you really have to work yourself towards that SVT with a bundle branch block to make sure you're doing the right thing for the patient. And then we did talk a little bit about treating ventricular tachycardia. Obviously, if they're unstable, electricity once again. 
For the stable VT patient, you do have some options. Procainamide is probably the best based on the recent literature that we have. Amiodarone can be a second line. And Amal does note that adenosine can break about 10% of patients with ventricular tachycardia, which means that we can't use adenosine diagnostically. Just because they broke with adenosine doesn't mean that's an SVT with a bundle branch block. It could still be ventricular tachycardia. And then we get into atrial fibrillation. We get into some other dysrhythmias. It's a good piece to go into. And Jan, we're actually going to have another update on atrial fibrillation in a couple of months because we've got some new guidelines out of Canada. We're going to look at those with Susie Demeester. Yeah, I think we have focused recently a lot on tachydysrhythmia as we did in September, the piece on a pregnant patient that came in with a complex SVT. And so I think this piece was a nice summary to kind of wrap up the evidence and just sort of review all of it at once. And so thanks for doing that with Amal. This month, Darren Brody did his airway corner on ketamine and intubation and took a little bit of a deeper dive with Brian Driver from Hennepin. Now, last month, Swami, you had done a piece with Scott Weingart also looking at ketamine and intubation, but more looking at ketamine versus atomidate. And Scott talked about how he likes to use ketamine and intubation. And I think Darren and Brian kind of take a different approach to it. They really talk about patients who either have fragile anatomy or tenuous physiology. We're really worried about taking away their airway and what kind of an intubation you do with these patients. The classic teaching is that you want to go for an awake intubation, which is topical anesthesia. Maybe you do a touch of sedation, but you actually avoid paralysis altogether. So they're focusing on that population of patients and looking at using ketamine potentially in that population of patients for awake intubation. And what they did was they took a look at the NEAR database, which is also something you and Scott talked about last month. And they focus in on a new paper that Brian Driver was an author on, looking at the group of patients within that database that got ketamine only. So out of the 19,000 people in the NEAR study, there were 102 patients who received only ketamine. And in this paper, they compared that group of patients to the 80 patients in the NEAR database who got topical anesthesia only. And they talk about the complications that were seen in the ketamine only group. There were some people who had vomiting, and there were more adverse events in the ketamine-only group compared to the topical anesthesia group. Now, knowing that there is some methodological issues here, which you and Scott talked about, the NEAR database is an observational database. It is a retrospective you know, registry of patients who get certain types of intubation procedures, and there's some bias that's introduced to that. There, Why is one patient in one group versus the other? It's not a randomized controlled trial, but they really kind of take that data and then talk about what their personal approaches are. And they talk about sort of a dichotomous approach. Either you're doing true RSI with complete control of the airway with paralysis, or you're choosing an awake intubation approach where you also have complete control. You're doing topical anesthesia. Maybe you're doing a touch of sedation if truly needed, but you're also con- you know, controlling your situation. And they both kind of agreed that staying away from the middle ground where you're just giving a sedative and not really giving a paralytic not really doing topical anesthesia, just thinking that you'll get away with a sedative in the middle is an area where there's a lack of data to support it and can be a little bit messy. And they both share a little bit of their personal experience with that. Darren also, an EMS expert, has to mention that in the EMS world, they commonly don't have paralytics and they're also not equipped with the tools that you need for an awake intubation with topical anesthesia. So they're left in a little bit of a tougher situation. This is a tough thing because I think uh, really this depends on your comfortability with either of these approaches or any of these approaches. If you're not comfortable with doing good topical anesthesia, not a good way to go. If you want to do that ketamine-only approach, you really have to be comfortable with it. It's not just something to like, oh, I heard about this ketamine-only approach. Maybe I should try that in this patient. Probably not the best approach, something you need to practice, you need to get experience with. 
But I don't disagree with where the data tells us is the best way or what the data tells us the best way is to do this at this point. And I think sometimes we can overthink this. We've talked about this in past segments before where we we outthink ourselves from the what we are most comfortable with and what's going to be most successful. Most of the time, RSI is going to be the way to go and trying to complicate it more doesn't really do a lot of help for our patients. So I think if you're going to use topical, get skilled with that, take a course on how to do it, get some practice in doing it. If you're going to try the ketamine-only approach, same thing kind of stands. You got to get some experience of doing it before you break it out in that really tricky case. Our next segment was on the urine drug screen with Jeff LaPointe. Jan, this is the one that you said you really enjoyed. And I always love talking to Jeff, but I got to say, he was a little angry during this segment as we (laughs) talked about it because he hates the urine drug screen. It is a critically flawed test for clinical medicine that really wasn't designed for us to use in a clinical realm at all. And Jeff talks about this. This was really designed to check long haul truckers for whether they were using some of these illicit substances, but doesn't really have a good performance profile for patients in the emergency department. And one of the big things is the fact that it only tests for a couple of things, benzos, opiates, THC, PCP, and amphetamines. And Jan, that is a very narrow list of the things that my patients get into when they're using drugs. So it's not going to pick up a lot of things. It also has some false negatives. So for benzodiazepines, things like alprazolam and clonazepam might not actually light up that part of the assay. And some opiates also will not register as a positive, but it also has false positives where things like diphenhydramine can give you a false result for TCA if that's something that your urine drug screen checks. Reninidine can also give some false positives from amphetamines. And so we have to understand the different performance characteristics of this test. And when you start to really get into it, you realize how more and more it's not a useful test to guide our clinical management. And really, if you want to talk about management of the patient in your emergency department in front of you, you really have to look at the clinical picture and not looking at the drug screen to tell you how to manage that person. Yeah, I mean, you almost need a toxicologist to help you interpret the urine drug screen. So why use it? I mean, I, I think his point about, you know, when you have an altered patient and, you know, it's on your differential that maybe there's a drug involved and you can't tell from a toxidrome in front of you if that's the case. I mean, it can have some utility, but we really shouldn't rely on it to make diagnoses. And, you know, all of these different drugs have different half-lives. You mentioned that you know, fentanyl doesn't set it off. And, you know, we have at our place, we have a special test that we send out for fentanyl. You just have to know a lot about this test and you have to retain a lot of information. And I don't like to use things that I need to retain a lot of information about. I just don't have (laughs) enough room in my brain. So, you know, this is just not a test that I like to rely on at all. It is a great way to bump up your consults to toxicology. Just every time you get a urine drug screen and something comes up positive, give them a call and say, what does this mean? Although they're probably going to be pretty angry with you that you're calling them over and over again about a test that they hate to do. And Jen, I've never met a toxicologist who likes urine drug screens, ever. And that tells me there's got to be a problem with the test. Yep. All right, Jen. Well, this has been a great month. We had so much wonderful stuff this month to get into, to really discuss the depth and breadth of emergency medicine care, all the things that we can do and that we do every day out in the world. Maybe not you and me, Jen, every day, but our colleagues, what they're doing every day out in the world. And so much good stuff coming up later this month with the snack and some breaking news pieces. I can't wait to hear all of that stuff. And of course, Jan, I can't wait to be back in December. Not only do we have our end of the year show, Jan, next month, but we're also going to have a little bit of a recap. We're going to have a little recap of our favorite stuff through the year. People are going to be able to hear that later next month as well. Jan, I can't wait to get back next month and do this. Absolutely. I look forward to it as well. I can't believe 2021 is almost over. And everyone, you know, keep working hard out there. We all know what a tough job you have and what you do really, really does matter.
next time on MRAP. Is this still the right view, or is it time to change our perspective on this? Many, many cases are settled even though there was no wrongdoing on the part of the physician. It's one of those times where the white blood cell count actually matters. And I'll just describe what the parents told me happened. Yes. Uh, and then don't classify it when I'm, ta- when I'm talking to you guys on the phone. I'm using ultrasound almost invariably in all of my cardiac arrest patients. These patients should be prioritized and should be seen and medically cleared as soon as possible, since we know that evidence collection is going to be time sensitive. 